0: Ladies and gentlemen, the prosecution is not going to get that
1: man today, no, because I'm going to get him.
2: Welcome to this episode of the Hagman and Hagman Report. Doug Hagman, Joe Hagman together, something I like to call America's premier father-son investigative reporting team. Kind of in the middle of almost cleaning up the uh, the studio, if you can imagine
3: that. Joe, so I'm going to kick it off to you. we got a great show lined up for you. We really do. Yeah, we do. we got a guest, uh, one guest per hour for the uh, show. We have coming up in our number one, the Liberty columnist, Anthony Cardonega. He's going to be joining us in the first hour. Uh, James... Corbett is going to be joining us in hour two from the Corbett Report, in Stan Dale in hour number three, and we have some overlapping topics that these guests want to get into. I know Stan is and Anthony both want to get into Saudi Arabia, what's been going on there. Something Stan's been looking at for a long time is this Saudi prince, Mohammed bin, what's his last name, Salem, Salon, Salman. Like King Solomon And we uh, Stan's been looking at this For a long time We checked his his Show images page today And he has a few Great pieces up there And one of them Is titled The powerful prince Who could save the world After ousting his cousin And this deals with uh, Not only geopolitical uh, Current events But also The prophetic events That we see In scripture Now uh, There's a lot of uh, Go to HagmanReport.com Bookmark the site If you haven't already There we post important news and information each and every day and today there's a a number of great and important stories up there right now one uh, dnc's donna brazil dedicated her book to patriot seth rich that's a story from uh, newsmax i believe or newsweek that's up there and it talks about donna brazil's new book and her dedication to seth rich what that means and we have a I have a lot of stuff on, on you Donna know, Brazil. I, I, yeah, I spoke about
2: week, that. Uh, today. I spoke about that during my morning show today about Donna Brazil a little bit in terms of. Um, have you noticed? Okay, we're seeing the fracturing within the, the Democratic Party, the, the, the Socialist Party. And of course, the news that the um, primary was rigged, of course, everyone knew that. Donna Brazil. Who lied once? And I, during my morning show, Joe, I equated this to uh when, when you've got a pool of suspects. We'll say when you, um, if you're if you're a cop, an investigator, you bring in a, a, a couple of suspects and you work them separately, and the, you try to flip one, or one flips on the other, other two. And this is kind of what I what I equated Don Brazil to, to doing, and I think she's the weakest link in the chain. Uh, so I think it's very interesting, though. How not just what she is saying, but where where my interest exists is in the media like CNN, yeah, MSNBC. How they're coming in and just attacking her well, incredibly.
3: See, we talked about this on our show today, and I I asked the question, why since we're we're a year beyond the twenty sixteen election, Hillary Clinton lost the election. She has no relevance in American politics anymore, nor will she ever again. Why is the media still protecting her? Why are they throwing Donna Brazil under the bus? Even on in an interview Donna Brazil gave the CBS host today, the hosts were badgering her, calling her bitter and angry for exposing Hillary Clinton. And this is the treatment that she's been getting in the media from, you know, being badgered by interviews she's doing to uh, being name called. Mar- uh, uh, Tucker Carlson said on his show yesterday that CNN handed down orders to its anchors to uh, Delegitimize yes. on a Brazil and yeah, this media yeah. is a coordinated attack against her why instead won't they just distance themselves from Hillary Clinton throw her under the bus and uh, get as far away from her as they can since the election's over since there's no point in protecting her any further Exactly. Unless there's something more going on here.
2: And, and with our, with our guests tonight, uh, starting with the Liberty Columnist, uh, one of the issues is of course the, what's taking place in Saudi Arabia, which, which is a huge money source of funds for Hillary. Now, now, they, when they implode, what's Hillary gonna do? Where, I mean, among other sources of funding, but, but certainly if you, if you follow the money, Saudi Arabia's one Putting a lot of money into Hillary and Bill's pockets. So how, how is that going to, um, further take her down? I think but you're she'll right. Be fine. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. How much money can you really amass and, and not be, you know, I mean, at, at a certain level, how much more money do you need, you know? So. Yeah. Imagine if she became president too. Um, well, that, that would never end. That'd be, oh, it'd be incredible. But, uh, it, Eric, give us a thumbs up when we have, uh, uh, okay. Anthony cardona coming on the liberty columnist wait a second before we bring him on i just wanted to mention a couple of things uh we are set up on patreon now and this is something i I didn't know we have not advertised this we've been on for a while i I don't know when i say for a while what is it been a couple of weeks on patreon yeah yeah for about a month or so okay but it hasn't been eric's been updating it we really never mentioned this and um this is a way that you can help support us. And I want to thank everyone from yesterday who, who have, uh, provided their uh, financial support, their, even the notes that, that we, that we received. So gracious of you, of you, of everyone out there. But, but here's the good news. The good news is we will, we are expanding and of course always pushing forth with, uh, the honest news and honest reporting. And, we're going to be doing some major upgrades to bring you more information in a in a, a much, well, in a, in a greater, better format. And it's going to help our guests. It's going to help you. It's going to help. It's just, so thank you. Thank you for that. So we have a Patreon account. That's number one. Number two, I just want to re, re-verify. Five hours of programming. Joe, you, you and John do a show, two to three, right? I do a show nine to ten. In the morning and two to three in the afternoon. And, uh, that, those shows are getting a lot of traction. Mine is all po- political or a world U.S. news and, and news and analysis. And, and yours is conversational in the same vein. I, I don't mm-hmm. take it. Okay. Alright. So just folks, if you can, uh, on blog talk radio, just go ahead and follow you click the follow. There is a button there to follow us. I know that people follow our shows. Um, so so if you don't mind, just go ahead and follow either the morning show or Joe and John show or both or whatever, but certainly follow this on BTR. Even if you listen to it on Global Star satellite radio, uh, just follow us on BTR. It does help the visibility on all platforms when you do that. And you, and you can right. share
3: the episodes via social media from what Tech Eric just said. Did, no. So make sure you do that. Did people hear you, Eric, or was that just in our ears? No? That was just that no, us. No,
2: see, see, you gotta mic up and talk because people, Eric's got this, this cult
3: following of people. It's kinda cool. <laughs> um it, it, it's, it's really neat. Anyway. We have our, our first hour guest with us, the Liberty columnist, Anthony Cardonigo. Welcome back to the show.
4: Hey, how's it going, guys?
3: Fantastic.
2: Hey, you're looking, you're looking well, looking pretty, uh, patriotic there in front of the the flag. It's great to see you back again. Yeah. Boy, you got a lot of talk, a lot to talk about, uh, from the crisis in Saudi Arabia to the uranium one deal. And I've been covering the uranium one deal a lot. Can we start there?
4: Yeah, the uranium one?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
4: Let's do it. Sure. Why not?
2: All right. So here's my take on this. Very simply. Mueller, McCabe, uh, Rosenstein, all compromised. And, and as such, cannot really effectively do any kind of investigation. Hillary Clinton, uh, dead center in, in, in this, um, uh, uranium one deal along Mueller, with Bill too. Clinton and Mueller, right? Um, so, so 145 million transferred to, uh, uh, the Clinton Foundation while Hillary was Secretary of State. You got Bill Clinton, half a million dollars in speeches from, uh, Russia, uh, in one speech that is. And then of course Frank Schuster from um the Canadian uh entity. But the bottom line here, twenty five or twenty percent of America's uranium being shipped overseas. And Snopes of course is not that ain't true when in fact uh because uranium one in, in the American um uh, uh um, the subset version of it did not have export, an export license, when in fact their logistics company that they used did. 25 percent missing or unaccounted for in terms of uranium, where it went. That's kind of the bottom line. And you have all of this criminality, and in my view, treason. And on my Twitter feed, at Hagman PI, I list all of the crimes associated with this. Compliments of Greg Jarrett. To you, sir.
4: Yeah, so uh, with with that kind of with that kind of deal with the uranium one deal, uh, it's really just a whole big mess and it, and it's really um it's it's been really an issue in my perspective uh, in context of the the Russia investigation that Mueller's been uh, spearheading. Um and the problem with that, you know, we all know that his own lawyers uh, his own colleagues including Rosenstein and even uh, Andrew Weissman uh, were all assisting in approving the transfer of this uranium uh, from the acqui- through an acquisition deal um, of taking this U.S. Ur- uranium and and actually um, uh, getting it in the hands of uh, a shell company that was tied to Rosatom, I believe is the name of the uh, Russian um, uranium company. Um, now this is all such a very 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 big deal, also because I, I believe in the past few days there's been some talk online on some boards like 4chan and some other um, alternative. Uh, news, uh, sites and sources where they've been talking about there are open, uh, or excuse me, there are actually sealed indictments pending at the moment, um, with multiple, multiple people that they're focusing on. Um, and we don't quite know who they are, but they are alleged to be, um, some talk about it being involved with, um, John Podesta, the Podesta group, his brother, uh, Hillary Clinton herself even was brought up in that conversation. So, Really, I, I speculate as to who exactly is getting in trouble at the moment, and, and if so, um, you know, coming after this Uranium One deal is really where the um, the paper trail is, what I would say. You're really going to find a paper trail, a financial paper trail of. I would I would pretty much assume you would find something along the lines of a, a of a shell kind of game, um, or some kind of uh, money laundering scheme involved with that.
3: Anthony, I want to ask you this. I saw, I read some of the same information you did. Um, when
4: it's
3: involved. Oh, sorry, Anthony. You, you cut out a little bit there. Um, I don't know if we just had a glitch or what. whatnot, but I want to ask you this. During, um, I, I read some of the same information on, on Fortune. For, do you believe for a second that, that either the Podestas or Hillary Clinton are, are going to be indicted?
4: To be honest, in my, in my gut feeling with the issue, uh, I've I've never been indicted, but, um, you know, I can only, I can only hope that with the right information in the right hands that, uh, it would be more, it would be more actual or more probable to actually occur. And so what I'm, what I think is going on is that if they focus on this uranium one investigation and they can actually turn this on its head with, uh, Mueller being, you know, kind of the spearhead, uh, the command center involved in, and the FBI investigating Trump with Russian collusion, if they can turn that on its head, and really show the um, the the amount of guilt that him and his uh, colleagues are involved with this Uranium One deal, I think that would be a very, very, very interesting play to see Trump make.
3: Okay. No, I I, I just don't ever think uh, we'll see Hillary Clinton indicted, even though there's mountains of, of evidence and proof that she should be. But uh, back to this Uranium One deal, because I'm reading... Um, some of what you sent over and, and some of its new information to me, at least some of the details about who these players were, um, what they were doing, who they were meeting with, how they're meeting with the Clintons, and um walk us through this a little bit more. How deep into the, the FBI and uh, even the former Obama administration officials, how deep does this run, this Uranium One scandal?
4: Well, with the FBI, I know it's involved with players like Andrew McCabe. It's involved with, obviously, uh, Robert Mueller. Um, and even Rosenstein is the one that actually formulated uh, the, perm- the permissions for Mueller or the, uh, the mandate, the investigative mandate for Mueller, and actually created that mandate to be a very broad one so they could actually reach into a lot of different uh, probes with this investigation. So you can see how the people involved in actually the transfer itself are then being involved in actually conducting the style of investigation and how it's actually run um but i but i i would like to tie it even further you know i think so many people cover this uranium 1 deal but they you know on fox news even on multiple sources they tend to not mention this key player frank justra um and i think frank justra is a very key point within all this especially uh with their reoccurring uh business relationship his relationship with the clintons and how you know he's actually let them borrow his jets He's, uh, he's been a very, uh, frequent donor to the Clinton Foundation and is actually on the board of directors of the, uh, Clinton Global Initiative. Um, and the Clinton Global Initiative being more of the, uh, business arm of the foundation. Um, that's where, that's where he lies as far as, um, the ties with Clinton. Um, and his role within the Uranium One deal is very crucial. Um, he actually first set his roots with this deal. Um, when he he opened up a, com- a company called Eurasian Energy, which is actually a Kazakhstani company and in order to actually have you know mining concessions which this company was uh, looking forward to acquiring, they would have had to work with the with the Kazakhstan government um, and that's where Hillary Clinton came in and Bill Clinton came in and kind of brokered that deal for mr Justra um, and that's that's a very pivotal point of the of the scandal to really show exactly um, the it really it really shows exactly how Clinton actually is used as a huge um uh, point of influence political influence and for that political influence many people will pay a lot of money for
3: yeah uh you're you're very right uh our guest is Anthony Cardonega, the Liberty columnist and Anthony we have about um 10 minutes until we take a break we're gonna have to take this break so we can get a piece of equipment hooked up We know why the Skype skipped out a little bit. Just to let you know, yeah, that's on our end. Well, one thing, (laughs) one one thing though that
2: that you mentioned, and I really appreciate this about your reporting. And and I've been following uh, John Solomon and Sarah Carter from Circa News. I've been following Sean Hannity and uh, Greg Jarrett with respect to the legal implications here. But I think you. uh, you you hit the nail on the head with with Frank Schuster. I think that this is really it's not being talked about. And Peter Schweitzer from his book and documentary um, mentions it, but you really take it a step further and kind of put the exclamation point at the end of the investigative sentence there. So that's good.
4: Yeah, yeah. I think it's a, I think it's a very key point that we need to look at. And, and Schweizer did a great job in his documentary. And, and I would actually urge those who haven't. Uh, read the book to actually read the book because the documentary really sums up a lot of the main points, but the book really gets into a lot of the actual timeline of everything and how it's all occurring because Mr. Justra is a very key person in all this, and it, we it, it even goes back to the, uh, and I know, I know we got a little bit of time for this break here, but I wanted to also mention um, it goes back to um, even his company. He has a company that uh, is called Alpida, weirdly enough, right? Um, it even has that symbol on it that back in November when people were actually looking at these symbols that were declassified by the FBI, um, that symbol was just blatantly displayed on Frank Schustra's logo of his company. Now, this company is a all boys uh orphanage in Greece, out of all places in Greece, okay. So this guy's a key, I would say suspect in all of this because you know he has pedophilic symbols with other companies not only is that his other affiliations but he also owns Lionsgate Films and if you know anything about money laundering that's a very uh, a very good avenue to do it through his production companies because you can really inflate the cost of production um and and kind of mess with a lot of um you know budgets uh as far as what it takes to produce a film and you know having the right financial planners involved you can really have a good operation
2: uh, I had no idea what you just mentioned. Now, obviously, I understand the film industry being uh, a, a key or having a, a the, using that to, uh, to launder funds, but I had no idea about the um, pedo angle, shall we say, of this.
4: Um, yeah. It's, um, it's pretty bad. I mean, I would, I would look, uh, if you were, if you were in the time of last year in November when it all started happening, it's really interesting, actually, because when we found out, when this community of people on Reddit and 4chan found out this, started screenshotting, screenshotting and archiving these these images on his website. All of a sudden, within a few days, the logo was changed. So that's that's a huge deal for me because that really that really displays a probable sign of like guiltiness, you know, yeah. being involved in something. So that was another weird angle.
2: This is this is incredible information. I, I believe. I mean, it's, it's fantastic. Uh, piece of, uh, investigative journalism that, that you're doing and our guest, uh, f- follow him on Twitter at Liberty Column. Of course, his website is the Liberty Call or Liberty, yeah, I'm sorry, the dot com. That's the Liberty dot com de- depicted there if you're watching live on our YouTube channel. And, and we're so grateful for, for his gift of time because he does have a good, handle a lot of knowledge on what's going on. Uh, so, so, okay, so J- J- Frank Giustra is this uh, business and, shall we say, a social connection here with respect to the Clintons and everyone involved in this. That, that wow, okay. Um,
5: all right.
4: Yeah, it's really, it's really weird, actually, because his, his actual resume or portfolio involved in what businesses he gets involved with is a lot of natural resources businesses. So he has some logging companies in Colombia. He has, you know, various assets with mining industry. Um, But ultimately people know him from the Canadian penny stock market, which is extremely corrupt if anyone's ever researched the Canadian penny stock market. Um, And they actually had to have a huge crackdown recently on a bunch of people involved. And he was actually the one out of very few that were not busted while he was actually um uh I think he was operating a security Organization. So he does weird things that almost seems like he has no uh, experience in, you could say. Um, but for some reason, they just get initiated, and for some reason, the operations just blast off, um, hinting at maybe a orphanage as one of those operations.
2: Wow. Okay. Uh, how long does the relationship with Justra go back to... Uh, how, how long has the relationship existed between the Clintons, specifically Bill and Frank Justra? Um, uh, th- does it precede the, um, or, or is it is it is it consistent with the uh, uh, his presidency, Bill Clinton's presidency, or is is it since that time, or does it is it after that?
4: It was after Bill Clinton's presidency, and I'm actually not quite sure the exact date of which to- of what time. There is an official date that Juistra actually confirms that is the case, but there actually is also conflicting evidence showing that they have had business relations before then. Um, Ultimately, they've had many organizations like Clinton uh, Global Initiative, which is kind of that subsect of uh, the Clinton Foundation, and he's a board of directors on that. Um, So he's taken a good salary from that as well. Um, He's also involved in a program called the, um, according to Peter Schweizer's uh, book, um, Clinton Cash, he's he's part of a program called the Clinton uh, Sustainable Growth Initiative, So he masquerades as like a uh, sustainable growth um, entrepreneur, yet he's, you know, chopping (laughs) tons of forests in Colombia and granting himself with concessions from various governments using our State Department, so.
2: Interesting, okay. Our, our guest, of course, libertycolonist dot com, dot com at liberty column on Twitter.
3: Um, well, amazing stuff. We got a lot of topics that uh, we we want to get into with you, Anthony. And Saudi Arabia is one that I've been following since the weekend. And we just have about uh, three minutes before the break. Let's get into this a little bit. Sure. Um, was did you see reports today of another prince dying?
4: another one as of today. Yeah. I actually have not seen that report yet.
3: Okay. I, I saw a, a report. I have not confirmed it yet, but that's why I asked. I wanted to know if you wow. have seen that. What? um So give us a, kind of a recap of what's been going down in Saudi Arabia. There was a missile launch. There was uh, an anti-corruption uh sting on some of the richest people in Saudi Arabia. There's this battle between Saudi Arabia and its neighbors. What, what's going on over there?
4: There seems to be kind of a... Divide, I guess, in the culture of Saudi Arabia, or, or it might actually be more involved in the actual governance of Saudi Arabia. Um, considering these people that have been showing up allegedly dying, um, the first one we actually have confirmed so far, I think his name is, uh, Prince Mansour bin Mukrin. Um, this guy actually like perished from a helicopter completely, uh, blowing up and crashing. And this guy was the deputy governor of the Assur province of Saudi Arabia. Um, so there's the, as far as to wrap it up quickly before the break, the context of Saudi Arabia is really um, really important to understand as far as what civil wars they've been involved with, with Yemen and Oman and their southern borders, and how we, we basically funded their entire operations along with the U.K. with our weapons supplies to Saudi Arabia.
3: Very okay. interesting. I'm looking at a report here from India today. I don't know if this is an, an accurate site or not. Second Saudi prince dead in 24 hours, question mark. So yeah, th- 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 that kind of was picked up on a okay, couple here, of sites. Okay, here, Daily Mail sites. UK, Saudi Prince alive and well after that, claims that's right. that there. We okay, go. all right. Yeah, so, it's it's it's
2: it, it's kind of the, the fog of this information. But uh, on the other side, uh, our guests will be discussing the, uh, kind of untangling the, the the Saudi
3: mess, and I find it fascinating too the timing of all of this. And, um, and don't forget also today is an election day. We have important elections in New Jersey, New York, yep. Virginia. I'm following Virginia the particular. Virginia governor's race right now. And you have um, Ed Gillespie was was winning. There's only a, a few percentage points of the votes in. But um, it looks like Northam just took the lead by a percentage point. So we'll see and continue to monitor those results as they come in. Anthony, what do you think? I've seen a lot of uh, people, political pundits on TV, talking about this is a must-win race for Virginia, uh, for the Democrats. Do you agree with that?
4: Um, I mean, I think the Democrats pretty much I would agree with that because ultimately the Democrats really are at their last um, stroke of luck here. Um, they're really falling out of power as far as the ones that are, are still in power. Um, I would even say to look further into the uh, the DAs that are also being elected.
2: Interesting comment. Um, there's a lot of really. Well, why would you say that? I'm just curious. DAs, I
4: have I have gotten it word that is, so uh, the DAs yeah, running election.
2: Being- yeah, hold, hold that, hey, hang on to that thought we're up against the bottom of the hour break and we're going to reconnect with you yeah um, if you can hear us uh, we're going to send up smoke signals we have an equipment equipment issue here we'll take care of that you're listening to the hagman report um, on this the seventh day of november 2017 the liberty columnist coming in strong great a great website a great twitter feed uh, make sure you follow them on twitter and also of course make sure you check out and bookmark his website. going to be right back with the Hagman Report. Stay right
1: Visit HagmanReport.com for the news and articles that matter most. Stay tuned. We will be right back.
5: In a thrilling series of novels, T.C. Joseph takes us into the lives of three families who struggle to maintain normal lives in a world where conspiracy theory and Bible prophecy collide. T.C. Joseph's viewpoint of alternative history and understanding of prophetic events will change your view of the world and the events on our horizon. Kirkus Reviews states readers of End Times fiction will be hard pressed to find it done more intriguingly than this. Extremely readable and fast paced. Blue Week Reviews boldly states fans of Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series and Tom Parada's The Leftovers will find this thought provoking series absolutely riveting. Order your copies of T.C. Joseph's This Generation series from Amazon.com. Book one Precipice, book two Pentecost, and book three (laughs) Penance.
3: edition of the Hagman report. Anthony Cardonega is our guest, the Liberty columnist and we were talking about Saudi Arabia before we hit the break. So we have uh, we have Lebanon, we have Yemen, Iran and Saudi Arabia all, I guess you know uh, talking back and forth about war and who did what who launched the missile. There was a, a missile launch that was shot down over Yemen. I believe that was Sunday. And we have this consolidation of power. Some are calling it an anti-corruption sweep; others are calling it a, a consolidation of power. And it is a situation where some say it could lead to war. Well, can, can I ask one?
2: I mean, one, one question: What started this?
4: Well, I mean, as far as the context or the history with Saudi Arabia and what wars they're currently involved in, you could say that they're they're involved in an interstate civil war, as far as like. The, you know, the culture of people in that area between Oman and Yemen. And they've been doing this for a while now, actually. There's a, there's a tribe, uh, people there called the Huithi, uh, they call them the Huithi rebels as they're reported in the media. Um, and recently with this missile attack, I think they're actually trying to say, um, whether or not this is actually true or not. They're actually putting the blame on Iran, uh, and saying that Iran has something to do with that. Um, and, actually saying that they are arming the Huiti people in Oman and Yemen as well. So I would be wary of like a false flag kind of situation.
2: Okay. And how do you, in your investigative and journalistic analysis, how do you see this playing out if you had to take uh, uh, take a guess based on your research, your investigation, and your following of this situation? How do you see everything playing out?
4: I don't see it quite playing out to, uh, to a level of aggression that leads to war quite yet. I think, if anything, this is a rhetorical move. Um, and, you know, with, with Saudi Arabia and who set them up in the first place, I believe it was British intelligence, um, back in the seventies. So as far as their roots of, you know, their chains of command, it's not, it's not simply just, you know, the kings that, the king and the princes that rule that, that state, but it's also the, um, you know, swelling deep state there as well.
2: Okay. All right. And, and yeah, I, I always believed, I mean, you, you you can go back into the Bush, well, long before that, but, but, uh, uh, Prescott and, and, and really the CIA kind of had a, uh, a handle in the creation of Saudi Arabia, you know, Aramco mm-hmm. back then. And uh, of course that the kingdom and, and then that just grew, but, um, I, find the, I find the history, uh, kind of, kind of fascinating and it, but, but, but I can see, given the, and, and I guess looking at the big picture, given the global power structure and the change, especially with Donald Trump as president, I, I could see that this kind of waning, the, the power and influence, uh, waning, but, but do you, do you see the petrodollar because of Saudi, uh, what they're going through? Do you see the petrodollar perhaps becoming weaker and, um, you know.
4: Absolutely.
2: Okay.
4: Absolutely, yeah. I see I see that as being the case. And it's also, I think, you know, I think timing is a big thing or, the, you know, a timeline is a big thing with all these kind of discussions. So other events that have that occurred maybe, you know, before or during the, the time span of us hearing about this, I know that, that uh, Syria has just recently joined the uh, Climate Pact. I heard that. So that. Yeah, that would make the United States the only country that is not part of the Climate Pact. So that could be a, maybe a precipitating event involved, um, with Syria having pipelines between Saudi Arabia, um, interests, uh, by Saudi Arabia in Syria. Um, and so, you know, with that being the case and regulations would be then placed and set for Syria, if they join this, this pact. Um, maybe that has some kind of, uh, reasoning behind it, some, some form of partic- precipitating event effect there.
3: Anthony, uh, you, I heard the same information about Syria joining the Paris Climate Accord, leaving the U.S. as the only country not a part of it. Do we know who made the decision in Syria to become a part of that?
4: That is a great, great question, um, and I would love to find that one out.
3: Okay, so we don't know, and it wasn't uh, announced at all. Hmm.
4: No, I, I, I didn't see uh, who exactly made the individual decision. I'm going
3: to uh, look but, see if I
4: can Yeah, find that was it. very important information for sure
2: all right while while he's doing that if we can move domestically now there was much information of course leading up to november 4th and this is something i covered extensively in my morning show uh about antifa you know it's being regarded as anti fail now because it, nothing happened you know or nothing perceptible happened and i know and and people and even you may say well i'm not you know you might even disagree with me but i believe the influence of the uh of of the communist revolutionaries or RevCom uh under the umbrella even of organizing for America. I believe that there's some influence there. But I'm I'm more interested in the long game here, the long march of communism. But let's talk about uh refuse fascism. Let's talk about Antifa, the protests that didn't happen on Saturday. Your thoughts on this whole Antifa Refuse Fascism deal. Um yeah just yeah.
4: I would say early on in hearing about this, which it was pretty early on in, we had a good warning um, once those infiltrator videos were posted and, you know, showing the kids talking about bringing K-bars and all this stuff, to what degree that was used to overhype the event or to what degree it was actually valid and to what degree, you know, Antifa themselves as a group might have uh, fizzled out in, in, in support before this event. All I can tell you is, you know, from my personal experience, I even went to Philadelphia myself. Um, and covered the November 4th rally in Philadelphia um, along with a friend of mine, Howie. And we were actually planning, you know, since the the year before, Howie was actually attacked at the, at the same kind of event, um, the same kind of people at least. And he was attacked and left a, left a really bloody um, scar and, 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 and injury on him. So we were really anticipating a lot of violence to the degree that maybe after when it got dark, you would get some of these militant... Uh, style revolutionary radical people, um, they like to think that they're revolutionary, um, but their tactics really don't substantiate it. Um, but, but, but what's interesting is that, you know, we really just had a rally and we had a protest and regardless of all the arguing and all the vitriol and hatred that I witnessed and cataloged and that's on my channel and you can, you can see on my most recent video, you can watch that for yourself. Regardless of all of that, there was no, uh, there was no violence that we saw at all. Um, even after the sun went down, I think a, a Mormon church came in and started singing hymns, so it really kind of put at ease the environment, um, and it just fizzled out. We even checked after it got dark and nothing happened, and you can kind of compare the same results that I'm speaking of to multiple cities, including Austin and other places, that nothing <laughs> nothing happened as far as a militant reaction, which is what they were going for. Um, at least that's what they claimed in their rhetoric.
2: Okay, uh, alright. And by the way, your YouTube channel is The Liberty Columnist, correct? Yes, sir. All right, just just to be clear, and subscribe, folks. Subscribe to his uh, YouTube channel as well as follow him on Twitter. Um, and this is why we really appreciate what you do, and this is why, folks, we need to support uh, uh, our guest. And, and because going out to these specific rallies and or not rallies, but these uh, protests, number one, it's dangerous, but also uh, it's important to, because it's firsthand information. But let me back up a little bit. Ed, have you read or seen? Ed Klein's book uh, with respect to uh, the war against Donald Trump, his latest book that came out on October 30th Uh, uh, Well, I guess I'll just get right to my question. In his book Ed Ed Klein talks about the um, relationship between ISIS and Antifa or ISIS and refus fascism in terms of operational preparedness
4: Hmm. I don't know
2: have you seen that at all?
4: I, I haven't. I haven't myself, but that's definitely an interesting angle. I actually made a lot of parallels myself between the two. Well, well,
2: well um, we have, um, and, and this is just. In fact, I haven't yet reported publicly on this. Uh, The Northeast Intelligence Network, where we existed at one time back uh, right after 9-11 to infiltrate Islamic groups on the Internet, now we have investigators infiltrating the actual groups themselves in the meetings. And our results of investigation that we forwarded to local authorities are very consistent with what Ed Klein had stated, where uh, I think he documented two or three individuals that were sent to Europe and learned bomb making skills and such, and hmm. came back, and this is documented by the FBI but having said that um, you, you know i I'm looking at the long long term perspective because isn't this all about the implementation of socialism and, and communism in this country
4: yeah well it seems to go by you know it, it's almost a it's a new form of extreme colonialism um it's just using technology as kind of a technocracy to control a, you know, unified, not in the sense of culturally, of course, but a, a statewide unified order. Um, and I think that's, you know, they're kind of hand in hand as far as Antifa and ISIS being on the same uh, MO level um, of how they operate. ISIS, of course, in my opinion, being way more of a, a threat as, as it's connected to the intelligence agencies themselves, as well as Antifa. I would not be surprised if they are connected as well. Um, but they seem to be putting more money and more resources in the ISIS than they have been for the, for the past uh, you know few decades. Um, so, you know, ultimately there are many parallels there, um, and I think Antifa might be used um, in some way just to, to project onto America because I do, not, I do not believe that they would actually be the threat. I think that they would be used as an agitative aspect to get more of a rise out of the right. It's, it, in my opinion, Antifa is more of a progenitor, of, of an undesirable effect, like the right, um, the identitarian right, or even you know, even the libertarian right reacting in some way of causing um, a civil war or causing some kind of reaction to violence, and that's really a Solinskyi tactic. And you know, reading reading the book, book myself of Solin, by Solinsky, uh, Rules for Radicals, um, that goes into all that stuff, and and I see it every day um, with their playbook.
2: Very, very well said. By the way, and uh, I, I appreciate just looking at your YouTube channel. um November fourth, refuse fascism, Antifa protests, Philadelphia. And, th- and thanks for, th- thank you for going out there and reporting as you did. And thank you for reporting on, on well, throughout your YouTube channel, it's it's a wealth of information. We really appreciate that, Joe. You were going to say something, and I think I'm yeah.
3: Anthony, where do you see the future of these, you know, refuse fascisms, these Antifa groups, do they have any more standing in this country like they did a year ago since we've seen them teaming up with NAMBLA and, uh, you know, creating violence at all these events? Have they lost their legitimacy and therefore really lost uh, their connection to the people? Or do you think they're revamping for a round two?
4: I feel like, um, imagine this. I feel like in the context of the Democratic Party being viable and having their heart or their pulse, figuratively speaking, their pulse actually beating at the moment. Um, I think that's really key to Antifa as far as legitimizing the event because really what you see is these figures in the Democratic Party, including Pelosi, including, uh, Elizabeth Warren, um, all these people kind of, uh, giving credibility to an extent or, or feeding into some of the rhetoric that Antifa themselves, um, spew out. But really, I think what's interesting is that since the Democratic Party has really crumbled to an extent that they're really in a weak state, the legitimacy of Antifa has really been falling in the same line. Um, in, in a way, I would vision it like on a graph, they would be going down at the same rate. Um, but the thing with Antifa, um, you know, now that they've lost this legitimate arm, this, 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 uh, political arm to grant them legitimacy, You know, really, you're just getting you know more and more and more money being funneled into an organization that's hiring more and more mentally ill people to go out and express their anger in ways that they think are going to affect the political system, which of which you know, Antifa. This is how you know it's never going to work with Antifa because really their goals are to rid the to get rid of the Trump regime per se, right? So in that respect, I mean, the Trump regime could probably, in their perspective at least. Uh, in their perspective of an enemy, um, they are going to have an enemy about 14 layers deep below the president. Um, you're going to have a lot of people in the line of succession of the president to actually stop um, the country or get rid of this supposed regime. Um, so it just shows their ignorance of the political system itself and how they're really not taking uh, into account enough the the actuality of the political system and how it's actually structured. They they really don't understand.
3: Okay. Anthony, I want to ask you this, uh moving from the Antifa to uh, another topic, the uh what we've been seeing with Donna Brazil, the Hillary Clinton information, and the yep. Bernie Sanders nomination being stolen away, why don't we see the yep. anger focused towards the DNC? Why is it focused towards the right when really uh, many of the antifa people I believe are Bernie Sanders supporters. Why do we s- not see them backing up their their candidate instead they're going after uh, a perceived enemy
4: yeah it's it's kind of crazy right because you know when you hear the report from Brazil herself and, and in her in her book she talks about fearing for her life you know to what to what level or to what extent does somebody have to lay out? in their rhetoric, whether it's in a book or whether it's verbally being spoken on an interview on like MSNBC or whatever, to what extent does she have to say that she's feared for her life after she said that Clinton was involved directly, uh, you know, with the DNC, colluding against Bernie Sanders, goes out and says such a statement, then says she's fearing for her life. To what extent do we need as evidence to say, um, you know, where's the finger being pointed here, right?
2: Is, is that a legitimate fear in, in your mind, in your view?
4: I have my concerns with her uh, as far as um, her connection with uh, the Obama administration themselves and how you know this is ultimately a way to kind of compartmentalize what's happening. Um, that's kind of the other angle with this, and we'll see with time how it unfolds. But if she's being genuine in all of this, I really, um, in the giving her the benefit of the doubt with this, I would be concerned for her own safety at this point. Um, but if it's not that case um it's definitely a case of uh compartmentalization
2: interesting uh, interesting analysis e- e- either one yeah e- e- very interesting analysis i i i think that that um that would open uh, a-, a different uh I-, I think a different perspective at least in my view on on the Brazil matter um wow okay right the compartmentalization and if i may interrupt yeah
4: she was also involved we all know she was involved with passing the questions before the debate um prior to the election so there you go it's so, like to what degree is her um i guess culpability is a word maybe or or guiltiness to what to what degree is she guilty in this and can that be used um as a form of blackmail in itself to control one to go out and compartmentalize such 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 a, such a scandal uh,
2: again a, a very good Analysis here, and I think one that that's a, a little bit out of the box, but nonetheless important to kind of take you know put into the equation. Wow, okay, that, that that's good. Um, yeah, it, it's it, it's it's kind of interesting to watch. And I was right before you came on, I was, I was talking to Joe, and I, and I think the, uh, the the reaction by the media against Donna Brazile uh, right. to me is is a story by itself, even there. I always
4: say uh, with the media, you know, I try to use the 180 rule because you have to really – specific media outlets including ABC NMS, NBC and CNN, they all tend to follow the typical CIA mockingbird agenda of narrative. So they're ultimately the enemies here, and we always have to remember that. And so if they're, you know, coming out against her in the hopes that they're not bluffing, for instance – um, if they're coming out against her, then that should be used as, um, you know, a sign that, you know, do the 180 rule with them and realize, you know, maybe she's actually coming out and saying to a degree something that's um, one we already know is true, but maybe she's actually being genuine about the way she's coming out about this.
3: Interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of angles um, to look at when looking at the Donna Brazil story. And real quick, the Paris Climate Accord, it says that Syria joined the Paris Climate Accord. Syrian officials announced their intentions to ratify the accord at the U.N. Climate Change Conference. They go on to cite a local administration and environmentalist, as well as the Syrian Arab Republic uh, supports the implementation of the Paris Climate Deal. So it wasn't Assad, obviously. They are saying it was some other bureaucracy under, uh, as part of the Syrian government.
4: Right, and it actually, I wouldn't think with what what Assad has displayed so far in behavior, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go to assume it would be Assad, um, but it does, it does, like you're saying, seem to be more of a legislative endeavor.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, now, uh, moving along here to, of course, the big news of this week. Sadly, we saw that that shooting at the uh, church in Texas. Uh, this mass shooting. What are your thoughts? Um you know, every time I think about this it, it just saddens me because we, we live in an area where there are a lot of small towns like that. And and you're looking at just a tremendous loss of life and people, it, the lives of the entire just about the entire town being uh touched.
4: Ooh.
2: Your thoughts When I first
4: saw this when I first saw saw this I thought you know, I've seen this so many times. So, like, it's like going into trying to figure out the motive and all this stuff. It's like the logical aspect of this. I've exhausted so many times with these shootings. Um, but ultimately, it's like before even thinking or having thoughts about it, my feeling with it, I was just sick. It's like just, just hearing about it and being so numb in my, in my personal, uh, opinion, in my personal feeling of myself reading these stories, I give. I'm, I'm numb and desensitized to hearing about this. And and that should be a red flag in itself. And, you know, the fact that this act was committed by this socialist-loving, kind of anti-fascist, identitarian-aligned, uh politically-motivated atheist person, um, you know, killing 27 people in a church, you know, and of those 27 people, 12 to 13 of them were children. So it's just like, that alone is such a... It's a disgrace, and it's such a tragedy, because even in the in the in the respect to the motive of this person, um, what in a child's brain um, has any representation of a political ideology that opposes is in contrast with Antifa's? You know, so so just blatantly killing these children who who barely even have the necessary mental faculties to develop an ideology to even oppose Antifa, it just shows how Antifa's really lost its way even even beyond uh, they're they're crazy antics that are ideologically motivated. Now it seems to be just like, I mean, where's the motive with that? You know, where's the motive with those exactly. children? It's utterly, it's 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 just a blanketed view of you know right wing Christianity to the point where they will kill children over it.
3: Yeah, it, it, it's it's an amazing and you, the you new bring new details up today came out about that. Yeah, uh, go ahead about. What the shooter was yelling, he was uh, saying, "You know, die!" as he was shooting, and also shooting children point blank as he went through his. Think about uh, that. And then they also said that 15 magazines of 30 rounds each. They estimate he fired 450 rounds total. Man, it's crazy. And the one shot was shot five times.
2: But you make a good point about the being desensitized uh, to an extent. And numb uh, to, to the many mass shootings that we've seen here of, of late. And um, that's, you know, uh, that's never good, of course. Uh, but do you. I think it also has
4: a lot to do with, you know, enacting legislation. You know, sorry to interrupt there. No,
2: no, that's. Go ahead, please.
4: Yeah. I just, I feel like, I feel like to some degree, you know, examining my own feelings about it and saying I feel numb and I feel desensitized. It ultimately, you know, I'm thinking twice about even those feelings themselves and other people, if they feel the same way, it's like, you know, at a certain point, you just get tired of hearing about it. And to what degree will someone say, yeah, put up gun control? To what degree will someone say, yeah, you know, this is, this is that crazy. We shouldn't have um, automatic weapons or, you know, not automatic weapons, semi-automatic weapons. Um, it, it, that's what it starts to do. It starts to exhaust your will. It starts to destroy your willpower. And, and I feel that, I feel that when I'm very willful person with my views on this, you know?
2: Right. And, and that, that says something by itself. And I think people should recognize that for what it is. Um, when a person like yourself or, or even me, you know, we begin to say, wait a minute, uh, should we revisit this and, and to me that's you're right that that's the erosion of that will because of the um just because of the heavy nature of the event or events uh so, so i i i totally understand that but um the, the, but the fact of the matter is at the end of this you had a law abiding gun owner with an AR15
4: exactly
2: stop this no.
4: Exactly, and that's where I, I think the divide starts. It's like, in, in my view, which I'm, I'm very, you know, I wouldn't even say personally that I would even consider anywhere near any legislative intervention. It's just that I know that there are people that are not as solidified in their beliefs and they're more identitarian um, on the lines of what they believe in, and it's those people that are weak in their will. That will sway and say, "Oh, well, maybe this is the right way to go. Or maybe it's not. The, it's just all kind of ambiguous energy at this point."
2: Exactly. You know, exactly. No, no, you're 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 100 right. And, and one more comment I've got on this: the what 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 shocked me, and and I, and I, I shouldn't even be shocked, but what did shock me was the vile nature of of, of the Twitter comments by people saying, you know, yeah. where is your God now? Or it, 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 Just incredibly vile nature. I, I posted uh, um, a few on I, I can't remember who, who the author was uh, but compiled a, a, a listing of tweets. That, that was just shameful. And, and it's,
4: I
5: saw a tweet myself
4: that sounds a little bit like what you were saying. They were talking about like, oh, who says that they need prayer anymore? Yeah. It's yeah. like Oh my gosh, you know, like that degree of, that's what I mean by that desensitization. Like, oh, seeing this again, just another day, you know, like that's exactly what they sound like.
2: Precisely.
4: Um,
2: yeah. So, so, so I think, I think it's interesting to get your take and your analysis on this because, um, I, I, we believe in, and folks, uh, uh, Liberty columnist, uh, in my view anyway, representing the, the finest of, um, uh, investigative journalist before your demographic, and, and I, I don't want to, you know, put you in a, in a corner there, but but I think it's interesting. Your perspective is interesting. Your analysis is always, in my view, spot on. So, having said all of that, it's it's really great to get your perspective on things, and and uh, well, whether it's from geopolitics and, and the world sense to this, and we're out of time. Boy, well, I'm incredibly Go Joe. I'm sorry.
3: Anthony, thank you so much. Uh, folks, visit Anthony's website, thelibertycolumnist.com, thelibertycolumnist.com. You can find him on social media as well as YouTube. Anthony, thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to having you back on in the future.
5: Absolutely. Exactly.
3: All right, folks, we're going to be back. Network break. James
2: Corbett coming up. <laughs> but if, bang, you're charging your rechargeable batteries. Super GMAG Chargeable is affordable. It's lightweight, weighs about 8 ounces. It's durable. It's EMP-proof. And it's environmentally friendly, yeah, that it is. It'll provide safe and convenient power for recharging uh, six AA batteries off the grid. When other power sources aren't available anywhere, anytime, in any weather, day or night, go to greenovative.com. That's greenovative.com.
3: You should have a minute, man. the survival stove in an m o k
0: plantations qualified accredited investors should go to precious timber or dial 855-888-6288 for more information call 855-888-6288 or visit precious this announcement does not constitute either an offer to sell securities or a solicitation of an offer to purchase offering made by prospectus only 855-888-6288 precious timber profits.com. precious timber profits.com.
2: push that button welcome to this edition of the hagman report it's you know it's november 7th 2017 how fast this year has gone uh full year of donald trump as uh as president and of course the meltdown on the left but even more than the meltdown is the uh vicious attacks the uh destabilization from within uh against donald trump the uh, the um what would you call them? The, the, the resistance built within the government that are that that are collectively working to block everything that our president Donald Trump has done is doing, and that's compliments of Obama. And, and then, of course, you've got um, the attempts to take him out of office via uh, the Mueller special counsel and, and his investigation, and then concurrent with that, and I, and I spoke about this this morning, concurrent with that, you've got the parallel attempts, the chaos in the streets and what have you. So I think all of these things working in tandem on parallel tracks, uh, interesting relationships built into destabilize our country, to uh, delegitimize uh, the president. And remember what Hillary Clinton said during her uh, time, or during during her campaigning, that anyone who questions the results is a threat to our democracy. Oh, yeah. That's the word she used. Until she's on the other side. Yeah, exactly. Uh, be, before we get to our next guest, uh, if you are anywhere near Fayetteville, Georgia, this, this coming Friday from 7 to 9 p.m., November 10th. You've got to stop in to the GOP headquarters for a nonpartisan event. Kevin Shipp, the former director, or I'm sorry, the former decorated CIA officer, counterintelligence investigator, and um, counterterrorism officer, who occupies some of the most sensitive positions within the CIA, at at a very great risk to his personal freedom and personal safety. He's going to be providing a uh, stunning expose of uh, on what he calls the shadow government. Now, I know the content of, of this, and it's well worth your time. Okay. His recent condensed speech on the shadow government was, has gotten over a million views on YouTube. We've featured him. If you recall, we featured him as well. Admission is free. So, there are no refunds. Uh, however, there will be a book signing after the event. For more information, contact uh, Ascent Publishing, LLC. Uh, you can call, no, 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 here's the number. We're not going to post it on the screen, but now you can go back and listen to this number. Uh, for more information, you can contact Ascent Publishing, LLC. The phone number is 912-578-4087. And that's uh, Sue Williamson is in charge of that. But uh, GOP headquarters this Friday night, and that's at 174 Glen Street in Fayetteville, Georgia. So if you're anywhere near that location, man, I'll tell you what, uh, stop. Listen to listen to what Kevin Shipp has got to say. He, he is, in my view anyway, uh, one of the most honorable men I've, I've ever had the opportunity to speak with. And this event will really knock your socks off. Uh, and the uh, f- former CIA officer. And, uh, yeah, seven to nine this Friday at the GOP headquarters. It's a nonpartisan event though. That's just the venue in on Glen Street in Fayetteville, Georgia. Seven to nine. Take a listen to what he's got to say. Uh, it's, it'll be an incredible event. And when you're there, Tell them you heard it on the Hagman Report and heard them on the Hagman Report. Please do that for us. And before we get to our next guest as well, please uh, make sure you spread the word. We have two new shows, five hours of programming. And I say new. They're not really new. I guess we're under our 90th episode. Or no, say 80 episodes in the tank, I think, right? For which one? For our shows, our new shows.
3: We, uh, I, uh we're, we're over the three weeks. month mark of doing the shows. Okay. 12 weeks. My goodness, how, how
2: time flies. But, but the, um, Doug Hagman radio show that's from nine to ten that airs on blog talk radio and you can get your, the archives, uh, go to HagmanReport.com and click on the two new shows or listen one of the tabs on the top. And then of course Joe and John from two to three every day, that's Monday through Friday and, uh, and I did a special episode this Sunday you might want to check that one out too so am very proud of that and thanks to you uh, for your support, for supporting us we're able to Get additional information out there. Now, our next guest coming up is James Corbett. And I've got to tell you, this man, a quarter of a million subscribers, I mean, on YouTube alone, millions upon millions of views with respect to his investigative work product. Everyone, I believe everyone, at least everyone I've spoken to knows exactly who this man is. He's got, he's a very articulate, uh, gentleman. He's, he's, he's the creator of, um, uh, uh, a new documentary why big oil conquered the world i watched this today i watched uh, i watched the uh, the um uh, how big oil conquered the world and you know joe so, something i wanted i wanted to mention to you in this i saw a lot of familiar geography there because the one uh, video talks about titusville drake well the oil well Mm -hmm. drakes well and i spent uh i spent quite a bit of time actually i lived in titusville for a period of time in uh my goodness a lifetime ago and uh very familiar with with the, the, the drake's well the oil down there and uh even at that time it was in the 1970s for a period of time even then um it was, it was just rich history. So his, James Corbett, the uh, why big oil conquered the world and how big oil conquered the world, to me, was absolutely a fascinating watch. And and what what you can deduce from it is incredible. And of course, his website is CorbettReport.com. That's CorbettReport.com. So we're really thankful. And I'll just have you bring him on.
3: Yeah, James Corbett, welcome back to the Hagman
2: Report.
6: Thank you very much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here.
2: Man, I'll tell you something. You're making waves all over the place. Your new, your new documentary. Um, it's, it's an amazingly comprehensive work. You, you must have put a lot, you must have put a lot of time into that. I'm not sure how you do what you do, but certainly it's well worth the, uh, well worth the watch. uh, I, I, my goodness, it answers a lot of questions. Let's start, let's start there. Let's talk about your documentary.
6: Sure. Well, thank you for uh pointing that out. It certainly was a lot of work. In fact, in some ways, I think this is the culmination of my 10 years of doing the Corporate Report <clears throat> is really encapsulated in this information, which when you look at the whole How Big Oil Conquered the World, which I released two years ago, and Why Big Oil Conquered the World, which I released last month, it's uh, to uh combined. It's a three-hour documentary, but it could have easily been a 30-hour documentary, given just how much material is condensed down into it. So... It was quite an incredible, incredibly challenging feat to try to condense that amount of information down to just a few hours and to do it in a way that's presentable and understandable. And I hope I've done that, but it really does try to cover the past 150 years of history, um, and the coming 50 years of history. So, you know, not, not too big an ambitious project, right? Yeah, really. You, you know, as I watched this, um,
2: uh, you you're right you could have gone 30 hours and i can i could tell you this i would have watched all 30 hours um but, but this is an important really an important aspect of our of our history what's what's the takeaway if you were to kind of uh provide us with a summary or a takeaway for for this project that that you've done what's the takeaway from this
6: well, I think the, uh, the one or two line elevator pitch would be that essentially the, what I call the oligarchy, the, uh, the oil barons of old were, um, these families that created and consolidated the oil monopolies that monopolized the key energy resource of the 20th century. And that's the side of the story that most people would probably understand and relate to and have heard many times before. But this is n- not about that part of the story. This is about what they did with that money and power that uh, that monopolization of the key energy resource brought them. And I I think it's surprising, because ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, this isn't about oil per se. Oil was simply a tool to gain control over the population. It is what they are doing with that control that is really the key to the issue, because if we concentrate only on oil... And think only of big oil as the oil industry and they only care about petroleum, we miss that bigger picture and we miss the fact that we are now being transitioned into a post-carbon economy. And what what comes after oil? And people can be deluded into thinking that, well, the you know, the big oil is being is being undermined and we're moving on to something else, and yay, I guess we're getting free of the grip of these oil barons. Well, no, not really. In fact, if you look at the people who have who are founding and funding all of the institutions and various things that are coming into view in this post-carbon economy, it's all the same literal families that created and monopolized the oil industry in the late 19th century. So um I, that's really the important part of this, and that's the the part of history that gets excluded when when most people are looking at this, because I think when you look at the big oil, how big oil conquered the world, why big oil conquered the world, you're going to assume this comes from a traditional... Leftist kind of anti-corporate perspective, That's it's so much far, farther beyond that, and it's so much deeper and comprehensive than that that I think it's going to be surprising for a lot of people.
2: Well, well I, th- I think you kind of blew the next question, my next question, out of the water then, uh, which which is, but I'll still ask it, to what extent uh, did Barack Obama play in the role of, uh, now these are my words, um, D- destroying, or man, uh, uh, maybe that's too too strong of a word. Adversely affecting the uh, the oil industry, uh, and then that would include coal as well. And to what extent, the uh, in the same lines, did Donald Trump play what role has he played so far or to date with respect to um, undoing what Obama did or didn't do? Does that make sense to you?
6: It does. I think. Perhaps the more interesting question is, who is really behind that dismantling? Was it President Obama, uh, or was there something else behind that? And I think we can look at kind of a deeper underlying issue here with regards to this dismantling of the oil monopolies and and all of that. In fact, if we go back to the dismantling of Standard Oil itself back in, I think it was 19... I want to say 1911-ish when the original ruling came down from the Supreme Court that, that, uh, disbanded Standard Oil and split it into what eventually became the Seven Sisters and ultimately made Rockefeller even richer as a result. Um, which is strangely enough. Funny how that works. Uh, that, <laughs> yeah. again, we can see that there's a, there's a hand behind the dismantling of these things that, uh, that guides it in a certain direction. So that also when it comes to this green movement that is, of course supported from the left side of the left-right paradigm. You have the leftists who are the, the greenies and environmentalists, and so they're supporting all these things, but not really, either not realizing or not scrutinizing too hard who is actually steering this? Who is controlling and funding and creating the organizations that are steering this? So that you can look at an uh, Obama and the things that he did with regards to coal and, and things like that, but why don't we look a, a step deeper than that? Um, for example, in 2006 there was this United States Climate Action Partnership that formed to create a call for action, which was used as a blueprint for legislative action that actually became the Waxman Marquis Bill that was floating around during the Obama administration in the early uh part of the first uh, term of obama's uh, term in office and that was this carbon tax uh, idea the the cap and trade idea that was floating around in congress that ultimately got voted down um but where did that come from well the united states climate action partnership sounds like some sort of you know leftist environmentalist group or something until you look at who it actually was founded by it was uh, BP, ConocoPhillips, General Motors—all of these people were involved in this USCAP that was funding this. Why? Why on earth would the oil oil companies and and and, uh, and car car companies and others that rely on petroleum? Why would they be funding these things that create this cap and trade scheme? That's uh, surely the no, this is, this doesn't make any sense because the left side of the paradigm is against these big corporate monopolies and they're trying to fight against it, but they're being funded. What? My head's going to explode. <laughs> it's until we realize that there's a deeper level of what's going on here. That again, it isn't fundamentally, it isn't about oil, it's about the control. And one way to control any resource is to create scarcity. Uh, it, artificial or otherwise, perceived or real, as long as the perception of scarcity is there. And one way to do that is to create caps and then trade and create these carbon m- markets. And lo and behold, who uh, several years ago in a uh, headline in the Telegraph was touted as being potentially the world's first carbon billionaire, carbon tra- trading billionaire, Al Gore. Yes. You know, the crusading environmentalist who cares so much about the environment that he has a uh, property that you, it consumes, I think it was 40 times more energy than the average American household. Uh, a a waterside property, by the way. So, of course, when climate change you know, causes all this, uh, this flooding, it's going to affect his property first. But he doesn't seem to care about that. And he's situated to be a carbon billionaire because of these carbon trading schemes that he's trying to bring into uh, play. Again, there's a deeper level behind all of this, and it's not about the political puppets that are paraded out, out in front of us. It's about the, the real string pullers and the machinations that they're doing to, to not only consolidate their control, but to actually make it complete, to have complete control over the economy and everything that happens within it. All right. And that
2: in my mind, that brings up the question of the petrodollar. Um, the or is that? And thank you for correcting me. You know, with respect to uh, saying that that's not really the, the right question to ask. It would be. Uh, so my question, however, in this case, is what about the petrodollar? In the in this case, given the fact that our U.S. dollar is is essentially um, the only value it, it does hold is its ability to to ensure the free access or the free flow of oil. Um, what's what's the What's the ultimate objective or the end game with our with our petrodollar?
6: So in the first part of this two-part documentary, How Big Oil Conquered the World, I did talk about the rise of the, the petrodollar. And for people who don't know, in the 1970s, as a result of the, the oil crises and embargoes that were going on, there was some shuttle diplomacy that was uh, spearheaded by Henry Kissinger, of course the acolyte of David Rockefeller, of course of the Rockefeller family, of course of Standard Oil. Um, who engineered a system, a deal with Saudi Arabia, whereby the Saudis would price their oil in U.S. dollars. They would sell oil for dollars specifically, and they would take those dollars that they were receiving for their oil, and they would uh, basically put them back into the U.S. Uh, uh, banking system by buying treasuries and bonds um, through U.S. banks, including the Rockefeller's own Chase Bank win-win-win um, for the oligarchs who literally yeah. created a system in the post-Bretton Woods universe uh, after Nixon took the dollar off the gold standard. What's going to peg the dollar why would people continue to want dollars? It's because they need it for oil, and that sets the baseline, which creates this need for reserves, which creates the need, the demand for dollars, which creates the ability for the United States to print as much of its debt as it wants, add as many zeros to that debt as they want, and people will continue to buy it, because it is the backbone of the world economy, and the backbone of that system is oil. Um, it's an ingenious and diabolical system, and it's worked to a certain extent for the last 40 uh, plus years, but it is falling apart now, and we are seeing the end of the petrodollar system coming into view, and there's some very, very fascinating things happening with regards to Saudi Arabia and China and the yuan that may be coming along, but I think the end of the petrodollar system... Uh, if not baked into the cake, at least, is an eventual reality. And I find it difficult to believe that the same people who engineered that system wouldn't understand that and be prepared for the transition into something after that. And in fact, they were. Uh, as I talk about in the second part of this documentary, why big oil conquered the world, there was, it was a movement in the 1930s, well 1920s, 30s, it was developing called technocracy, and uh, it became an organization called Technocracy Inc., founded co-founded by Howard Scott and uh, M. King Hubbert, who people might remember as the founder, the the, the inventor, the discoverer of Hubbert's Peak, aka Peak Oil, which was in fraud in and of itself. But at any rate. Um, He was, at the time, in the 30s, founding along with Howard Scott, who was this eccentric engineer who turned out to not have any qualifications whatsoever. He was a complete fraud. But they came up with this idea for technocracy, which is the system of complete technological engineering control over the economy, and thus society and politics and everything, basically the world. And their idea is we now have the technological know-how and ability to perfectly dynamically balance production and consumption in the economy. Because, of course, the great problem of capitalism, which, of course, was staring people in the face in the 1930s, specifically during the uh, the Depression, was we have these great booms and busts, and we have these depressions, and the economy is constantly trying to come to some sort of stasis. It's always blowing up or, or collapsing. Um, well, we can perfectly dynamically balance production and consumption by simply monitoring everything that's taking place in the economy. And instead of using dollars or pesos or yen or whatever to, as, as a currency, why don't we use energy itself as the currency? Because everything we produce in the economy requires energy. So we'll have these technocrats, these engineers, and these technologically minded people who will steward over the economy. They will decide a budget for the nation. Uh, or ultimately they wanted a continental um technate as they called it. But uh, they would decide on, we'll have so many, whatever, gigawatts, 1.21 gigawatts of energy uh, for, for the year, and every person will receive energy certificates, and here's your amount of energy that you're allowed to spend during this year, and you will purchase things using these certificates. And... All of those purchases will be monitored in real time by the technocrats, and they'll, they'll figure out, oh, you know, we need to increase production here and decrease there, and we'll have to adjust the budget here. And they'll perfectly balance it so everyone's employed and everyone's happy all the time. That was the idea of technocracy. And back in the 1930s, that was... I mean, there were a lot of insane ideas going around during the Depression because, obviously, it was a time of panic and and outrage and everything, so people were turning to crazy ideas. Technocracy was one of the crazy ideas they turned to, and a lot of people did. It was quite a large movement. You probably haven't heard about it at all in the last half-century plus because it kind of went away, but the idea was still there, and it was carried on by other people under other names. And that survives, I think, today in this idea that we see being forwarded. Why don't we create a carbon budget and why don't we have carbon allowances? And if you, you know, if you spend your carbon allowance, then you can buy more carbon credits. Or if you're out of luck, or if you're out of, if you're out of money, then you're out of luck and you can't buy any more credits. It's that old technoc- technocratic idea that eventually we will replace this these dollars, these petrodollars or whatever we're trading with, with energy. Energy will be the baseline for the economy, and you will be rationed and allowed a certain amount of energy. And that is the way that the economy is going to be controlled. And again, that crazy idea that they're going to monitor every transaction in real time and and do all these calculations was crazy a 100 years ago. It's feasible. It's not only feasible, it's already happening to a certain extent now. Every thing you transact is being databased and logged and stored and analyzed and sold uh, as information to other people. Now it's just a question of consolidating that and putting it in the form of some sort of energy certificate or whatever that sounds or looks like in the 21st century. But it is, we're on the cusp of that. And I think that's ultimately what this as the petrodollar wanes, I think the rise of this new form, this new idea of currency is going to rise. And, and that's
2: fascinating, by the way. It is, so it's going to be, it would have to be by necessity electronically based. And of course, that's, uh, as you had indicated, the, um, uh, the technocracy kind, kind of the over overlapping or, or uh, assimilating into this technocracy. Am I right, I I suppose? Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, right.
6: This will all be electronically monitored, surveilled, database logged, and uh, ultimately scrutinized. And, of course, the technocrats and the people who forwarded this idea are the engineers and what have you that, that, of course, in their own mind, they really do believe that they can properly do these these things and if they if they get the calculations right then they can balance the the economy perfectly and that will create social and political harmony and all of this i mean i think the people at that level really do believe in it but of course it's always a question yes okay you have these dreamers who have this crazy idea but who's funding and who's backing the people with these crazy ideas and and how is this being employed and i think that's when we start to see the bigger the bigger bigger picture emerging of people who the you know, billionaires, trillionaires, the whatever-ers, because they create the money, so who cares, you know, what money actually is. Those people who are backing the technocrats or would-be technocrats are the ones that I think are really steering the ship and steering it for the reason that it completely consolidates control over every aspect of the economy. Everything (laughs) you do, everywhere you go, everything you buy or sell, everyone you talk to is going to be tracked, Surveilled, database logged. It already is to a certain extent, and this would just consolidate that control. And then, it's just a question of, well, isn't that isn't that the world government's idea in a nutshell? Isn't that the ultimate dream of tyrants since the the birth of civilization?
2: Exactly, and, and we're there now, or at the at the cusp of that, I suppose. Which uh, I just I, I'm amazed at how quickly everything has. Really, I mean, just think back in 2005 is, is when the NSA kind of was, everyone kind of acknowledges that year the NSA was uh, actively involved in collecting the, the surveillance, the data maintenance and, um, and of course, uh, um, so, But look how quickly all of this has, has come about. And you
6: really have done a great job, by the way, uh, on the documentaries, going back to that. Well, on, on just if I can interject sure. on the note of how quickly this is all coming about, just before we went on, I was just reading a uh, an article about Ray Kurzweil giving a speech. People who don't know, he's this singularity proponent. He's the guy who is saying we're going to be merging with machines by the year 2030 and, you know, uh, he thinks it's a good thing. But anyway, uh, of course, now he's a senior executive at Google. Surprise, surprise. But um, this article is talking about a speech he gave in which uh, he was saying he still thinks we're on track. Uh, he's said for a while that 2029 is the date of the singularity where... Whatever happens, happens. You know, computers start to become smarter than humans or we merge with machines or whatever he thinks is going to happen. He's, he thinks we're still on track with that. And he, he points out, yeah, now that people are completely addicted to their smartphones, it's just a question of starting to wire that into your body. And by in 12 years from now, that's what people will be doing. And I don't think I there's a point at which I would have thought that would that was crazy. That's ridiculous. But the way that things are progressing, can any of us really say? I mean, just think 12 years ago when a smartphone would have been it would have seemed like star trek or something it seems like total sci-fi fantasy well here we are and now yes everyone is addicted to them and, and on them constantly 12 years from now where are we going to be this is happening a lot faster than people realize
0: yeah
3: it is and it you know it lines up with uh some say uh and i agree with this with with bible prophecy what the bible talks about will happen in the end times about this beast system that encompasses all, and you take the mark. And if you don't take the mark, you're an outcast of society that will be hunted and killed for not doing so. And and it's really interesting that we're at a point now where we, for the first time ever in human history, have the technological capabilities to implement a system that would do just that. I want to ask you this um, about the universal basic income. Now, I know this is not really a, a major thing, especially when we're talking about the technocracy aspect, do you think that they're going to implement some kind of universal basic income uh, on a national, international level at some point?
6: I think it's possible that we might move in that direction. But as always, I mean, the question is, who does this really benefit? And, uh, you know, accuse me of being cynical, but I don't think a move like that would ultimately be for the benefit of the human society in general, Mm -hmm. because it would ultimately be about uh in the same way that this the welfare state itself the the sort of new deal idea that we now have that the government is there to protect you from cradle to grave and to to provide you with all this manna from heaven um, which of course is just either stolen from you in the form of taxation or is uh is uh created out of thin air in the form of debt that uh becomes debt slavery at a certain point um that That idea is so insidious because of course it sounds so wonderful. We're going to take care of you. And if you ever get sick, if you ever have problems, we'll be there. But what it does is it creates not, not a net, not a safety net, but a cocoon. It's a, it's a shell and people become dependent on these systems that are ultimately, uh, their lifeline. They become dependent on, on this, uh, this, 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 whatever, this manna from heaven, as they say. And, that creates a society of dependence. It creates a, an, an idea of dependence, that we need the state in order to live, um, which is absolutely antithetical um, to what was common sense a century ago. Uh, people a century ago, when they started to bring in these sorts of ideas, social security number and all of this, people literally thought, this is this is insane, this is nightmare, this is tyranny. Um, and why, you know, we, we shouldn't be reduced to this. But now it's just so much a part of our everyday life that, yeah, okay, why not? And I think in the same way, universal basic income will be a way to make sure that people are completely controlled and completely dependent on the state, on the powers that shouldn't be, on the people who are puppeteering the system, so that ultimately, I mean, I think the ultimate goal is to round people up into small urban areas where they're allo- allotted, they're, they have their carbon allowance or whatever, and the worst part about this is that there is other layers of control that's being slotted into this right now. For example, in China, they're now talking about this new social credit system that they're bringing in. Yeah, That's heard that they're going to start assigning points to people. You can get points if you do things that are good in the eyes of the government, like, I don't know, retweeting, or the Chinese equivalent of tweeting, uh, something from, you know, the, the Ministry of whatever, finance or whatever. If you, if you promote that on social media, maybe you get some points, or things like that. If you do good things for the government, you get points. And... The idea is, well, if you don't have enough points, uh, you won't be able to do certain things. Maybe they won't give you a visa to travel to another country or whatever it is. At, at a certain point, it is it difficult to imagine that if you don't have enough points, then whatever, they throw you to the wolves, in metaphorically or literally, however that works. I mean, this is the way this goes. And if people are dependent on the government for their universal basic income, if they're literally dependent for their livelihood on that those systems of control, then... You can make everything into a game where you have to jump through all the hoops, and if you're a good citizen, if you're a good cattle, if you're a good sheep, if you can be rounded up and jump through all the hoops, then we'll allow you to live. And that's essentially the, the offer that's coming into view, and that's why these promises, these promises, we'll take care of you from cradle to grave, are so insidious.
2: Absolutely. And, uh, f- folks, you can see why the Corbett Report is so immensely popular. Uh, the, uh, oh, just go to CorbettReport.com. That's CorbettReport.com. And by the way, Corbett Report is a listener-supported commercial-free alternative media site. For as little as a dollar a month, you can become a Corbett Report member. And, uh, look, we get a lot of information from the Corbett Report. I cannot think of a better investment uh but, but definitely support James Corbett his work it, just the documentaries alone as we opened up talking about my goodness the amount of time and effort that went into that is just incredible so uh be generous with your support of James Corbett and uh, the Corbett report and also follow the Corbett report on Twitter corbett report simple enough on Twitter um if we can switch into a different topic right now because I noticed your your article from a couple of days ago now about the JFK files. There's a lot of to me, and I think you did a very outstanding job of really kind of getting into what's new and what's not. Can we talk about the JFK files for a little bit? Let's do it. Yeah. All right. So so okay. So now we've got allegedly uh, the 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 most comprehensive release. Given the 25 year, at the culmination of the 25 year uh, waiting period after the 92
6: decision of of the JFK assassination files, what did we learn? So just to bring everyone up to speed, as you say, in 1992 the JFK Records Act was passed, and this was the result, really, of the 1991 Oliver Stone film JFK that caused the public outcry about why are these files being kept secret? We we need them released. Um, Bush was president at the time, former chief of the CIA um, back in the 1970s, as you might recall, the director of the CIA, who had never been in the CIA before that point. Pinky swear, honest, uh, right? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Um, but uh, so it, a story. it's seems unlikely it. that he would pass something like this, that he would sign something like this, that would open some of these uh, vaults and archives. But he was hemmed in on the campaign trail. Clinton said, I'm, be- I'm behind this. So Bush said, okay, I'm behind this. And so it ultimately got signed. Um, and it created the Assassination Records Review Board, which throughout the 1990s was looking at all of these c- documents that were in the archives that were classified, that were, that had been kept from the public and working to get them declassified and, and put out, <coughs> put out to the public. So throughout the 1990s, it was doing this. And I think 1998 or so, it wound up its operations and some interesting documents did come out of that. In fact, people and your audience might have heard about Operation Northwoods, which was this plan that was put on Kennedy's desk in 1962, um, signed off on by the Joint Chiefs of Staff, um, waiting on Kennedy's desk for his signature to go ahead. It was a plan to commit and stage fake terror attacks, even to the point of actually committing terror attacks, including bombings and shootings in in Washington and other places, uh, blowing up planes over, uh, over the, the, the Atlantic, real or simulated. All of these crazy, crazy ideas um, that, again, was literally just waiting for Kennedy's signature. He did not sign off on it, thankfully. Um, but at any rate, Operation Northwoods, that whole plan, which people might have heard about, which is a key part of our understanding of false flag terrorism and, and what this really is, came from that Assassination Records Review Board and these documents that the CIA had been sitting on at that point for over three decades. Um, so now, uh but... At the end of the ARRB, they hadn't finished with all of the, the records. Part of the JFK Records Act that was signed in 92 was this 25-year window. Uh, these records have to be released 25 years from now. Well, 25 years later, is 2017, here we are. So, we get to the point where, literally, if Trump had, of, I don't know, gone golfing, had some chocolate cake, whatever, done anything, uh, these records should have, by law, been released. But interestingly enough, he didn't do that. He signed this extension. He said, well, okay, you know, these guys can have another six months to redact what they need to redact and blah, blah, blah. So, in fact, we did not get the release of records that we were supposed to get uh, last month. We got a tiny fraction of it. And to put some numbers to that, of the 3,000 and some odd documents that were previously withheld in full, that the public had not seen anything of, there there was less than 2% of those records. I think 54 or so of those records were released. And of the 30,000 or so that had been previously released in redacted form that were supposed to be released in full, we got something like 2,800 or so, so less than 10%. So we've seen just a fraction of what was supposed to be released released so far. And the idea is supposedly maybe the rest is coming before April of next year, and we've already seen a few hundred more records uh, given, treacled out to the public. So we'll see how this plays out. But at any rate, these are records that have been kept secret for now over 50 years, well, many of them over 50 years that relate in some way to the JFK assassination. So as you say, it's a question of finding out what's actually new here, what is new information, what is old information, what are false cookie crumbs that have been planted there to lead people off in crazy directions. And it's not so, it's not necessarily easy, even at the best of times, even for the most well-intentioned of people, uh, to look at these documents, unless you have been studying this JFK assassination bruhaha for 50 years i mean there's 50 plus years of research now it's very difficult to make heads or tails of a lot of these documents so i'm in the process of interviewing some people and i'll be posting that on my website later this week and next week uh talking about these files in greater depth but so far there's been some interesting nuggets i don't know if surprising but at any rate some interesting nuggets including one about operation mongoose which was the uh the cia uh, well the the intelligence uh, uh, broadly was led by uh, Edward Lansdale of the US Air Force uh it was a, a a destabilization campaign against Cuba overthrow the Castro government all of that that was talking about um there was the meeting's uh, minutes were released from a meeting that i believe took place in 1962 where they were talking about well we could introduce a biological agent to the uh, the crops in in Cuba that would destroy their crops devastate their economy presumably you know lead many people to starvation, the only qualm that was raised at the meeting about doing this was, well, you know, if we do it wrong, if we botch it, it might be tied back to the U.S. and, you know, that wouldn't look so good. So as long as we can do it in a way that that is undetectable or they can't trace it back to us, then as long as it looks natural, then we'll, you know, we should go ahead with that. Again, luckily, I, I uh, presume that did not go ahead. But at any rate, these are the types of things they talk about clo- behind closed doors, and these are the types of things that are buried in these JFK files. For anyone who's looking for the signed, seal delivered, death warrant, you know, Alan Dulles, please kill J- JFK, of course there is not going to be a document like that. But there are interesting things that we can learn, at least tangentially, about what was going on in that era from these files.
3: James, real quick, i got to ask you about Martin Luther King, Um was that part of the JFK file release, what we saw about information coming out saying Martin Luther King uh, was bisexual and was a communist or had communist friends? Was that part I of love the Love child orgies.
6: Right, yes. Yeah. These files, yeah, some of these files pertain to that. Some of it is because the House Select Committee on Assassinations back in the 1970s, which was looking at JFK, was also looking at the MLK assassination, so there, the, some of these files relate to a bunch of things that were going on at that time. They're not all directly related to JFK per se, so some of them do relate to Martin Luther King, including the fact that, again, this isn't new information. We've known for quite a long time that the FBI was in a committed campaign to ultimately try to get MLK to kill himself. They they were trying to get him to commit suicide um, by th- for, you know saying, you know, we'll expose this information about you and all of that. For people who are interested in the MLK assassination and the truth about it. There's an excellent book by Dr. William Pepper, The Plot to Kill King. It's the result of his 30-plus year investigation into the case. He actually represented the King family in the trial that took place a couple of decades ago um, that most people don't know about that exonerated James Earl Ray as the supposed assassin, and he actually identifies the actual person who pulled the trigger in this book. It's an incredible book, and I have an interview up on my page that people can watch uh, with Dr. Pepper about that. Cool, I, and what I'm going to buy the
2: the plot to kill King, right? The kill King.
6: Yes. Okay. I
2: I am going to order that book because on your recommendation, I have not read that book. Uh, it sounds like a fa- a fascinating read. Um, and, and you said you interviewed
6: the author. That that is correct, William Pepper. Look it up on my page. And, okay. Uh, it's a fascinating fascinating conversation.
2: Okay. Yeah, I, I'm I'm going to do that. That's that's okay. That's. Uh, as good as done. So, uh, Jackie, if you're listening to this, go ahead and push the button on that. Alright. Wow. Alright. Uh, incredible, fast-paced interview. A lot of information. Uh, James Corbett, of course, is our guest. The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com is his website. Follow him on Twitter as well. Uh, YouTube. Subscribe to YouTube. My goodness. we we got? Like a quarter million people, uh, subscribed. And growing every day. um it, where else? I mean, there's a lot of things happening globally. We can go anywhere with respect to uh, the news. Um, I, I know that uh, you had made mention of the in the Asia Pacific with respect to the recent uh, uh, the, the, the China situation, Japan, North Korea, all of this. Um, what's going What's going on here? Uh, we've got Donald Trump in Japan, and well
6: Yes, Um dumping his uh, fish food out <laughs> all at once in yeah. the famous, now infamous picture. Ho- yes, Hoygate. Um, yes, yeah. uh, there's some really interesting things going on oh over here, and maybe I'm a bit biased because I am here, so um, I'm obviously watching this closely, but there's been some interesting things happening recently, including last month there was the Chinese National Congress, the, specifically the Chinese Communist Party National Congress, which is this once every five years meeting uh, that the Chinese Communist Party Puts together. Technically speaking, the Chinese Communist Party is separate from the Chinese government. So it's not an official government thing. It's a Chinese Communist Party thing. But of course, as we all know, it, I mean, it's essentially the same thing. And at this once every five years meeting, they do things like deciding on any amendments to the Chinese Communist Party's constitution or, or, um, the selecting the Politburo, which is a 25 member committee that itself Uh, selects this seven-member standing uh, uh, committee within the Politburo, which are essentially the leaders of the country. And, of course, President Xi Jinping is part of that um, seven-member committee, as is Premier Li Qicheng, um, his second in command. But the interesting part was the other five members of that seven-member committee were all retired during this uh, previous National Congress and replaced with people who are seen as being close to President Xi Jinping. Beyond that, Xi Jinping also has this new thing called Xi Thought, and I can't remember the full title of something about Xi, the the Xi Jinping Thought on Socialism with Chinese Characteristics for a New Era, something like that, that's the official title. It's just basically these 14 principles that he elaborated on that have been embedded in the Chinese Constitution um, as part of this Congress, which makes him basically puts him on par with Mao as this revered thinker um, in the history of the Chinese Communist Party. And to top it all off, although usually there would be a successor for Xi Jinping appointed during this uh, National Congress, they, looking out five years from now, after Xi Jinping's ten-year term as president is over, technically, theoretically, he's supposed to hand power over to another president. Um, but. That did not happen. So there is speculation happening now that she might actually sta- stay on as president beyond his uh, 10 years uh, tenure term. So uh, some interesting things happening with regard to that that could play into the general security situation here in uh, the Asia-Pacific, which people know is getting crazier and crazier with the North Korea situation, for example, still being this giant question mark hanging over the entire uh, area. And then, of course, the Japan... Situation with the Japanese-U.S. relationship and how will Trump and Abe get along or not get along and how will they coordinate? Will they come to some sort of bilateral deal to replace the Trans-Pacific Partnership that Trump scuttled or will something else happen? There's a lot of interesting things at play that could really profoundly affect the way this region and I think uh, ultimately the security of the globe goes in the future.
2: Yeah, and and I kind of think that, in my view anyway, uh, I I don't think that enough emphasis or enough... um well, enough emphasis, I suppose, would be the way to say it is is being placed on the importance of of, of the visit there, and, and I and I know that you're from Japan or you're in Japan, living in Japan. Uh, so you, but but I, but I think that uh, what's taking place right now could set the economic stage, I guess, right for the near term and and in the long term, I suppose.
6: Yes, uh, we're certainly going to see what direction the uh, Trump administration is heading in, or at least with a little bit more clarity, because for the last several months, I think people have just been trying to sort out what is happening, because it seems clear that uh, that uh, Tillerson is not really speaking for the, or he may be speaking for the State Department, but maybe the State Department isn't speaking for the U.S. Uh, there's a lot of confusion about what's really going on, so some Trump-Abe meetings, and then Trump will be meeting with uh, the South Korean president. He'll be going to, uh, I I believe, the Philippines, some other places in the Asia-Pacific region. So there will be a lot of uh, things happening in the next couple of weeks, certainly for this region. And as I say, I think this does have some broader global implications, because, of course, the Chinese-U.S. relationship has been the cornerstone of the economic engine of of uh, the new world order essentially for the last couple of decades and uh it's very interesting to see what direction they're going to take that
3: yeah and uh trump's agenda or or schedule here he's getting ready to make a speech at the national assembly in south korea he's going to be heading to china tomorrow meeting with the uh president and he was supposed to go apparently to a, a trip today up to the demilitarized zone uh, right on the north south korea border but from what I can tell, there was some bad weather, and the Marine One had to turn around. Um, and he also gave a a tweet saying, expect a major announcement or speech uh, by him today and tomorrow. Tomorrow a major announcement. But I want to ask you this, James. Um, with the relations between China and the U.S. that you mentioned, Steve Bannon today came out and said that China is quickly moving to take over the world and collapse the U.S.A. through the economy. Do you believe that there is this... um um, positioned by China That they want to Be the sole world dominant power And that they are willing to, to uh, Do everything they can to undermine the United States To do so At whatever cost
6: I think there are people within the Chinese leadership structure that probably do believe that. But as always, the question is, who is really calling the shots? Who is really directing what's going on? And there's a much, much deeper story to this. China did not just rise up overnight spontaneously as Mm -hmm. this big economic powerhouse that suddenly has this military. This was a a concerted effort that's taken place since normalization of U.S.-Chinese relations in the 1970s at the hands of, Nixon, who was preceded, of course, by Kissinger, who, of course, is the protege of Rockefeller. So, again, it goes back to the same people. And uh, Brzezinski helped follow that up uh, during the Carter administration. And Brzezinski also being a close associate with Rockefeller and co-founder yeah. of the Trilateral Commission. Again, it all swirls around the same people. But there has been since that point a very concerted effort to create China as this economic uh, juggernaut. And that that that's such an important story to understanding what's really going on here. Because ultimately, again, just like with oil, people think it's about oil when it's really about power and control. Also, when people look at the politics of the, say, post-World War II era, they see the United States and, you know, the US is the superpower and all of this, and they start to think that these Kissinger's and Brzezinski's and Rockefeller's care about the United States, per se, and its relative standing against other countries. These people don't think in nation-states. These people think only in terms of consolidating power and control. So I think ultimately the plan will be to transition, at the very least, to take the United States down a peg from world unitary superpower into some sort of multipolar world, or perhaps to see the rise of something like China or Russia or some other power as a, as, as a power above the United States. At any rate, I think the, the taking down of the United States is part of this plan and is being conducted and coordinated between people like that. And it's interesting to see Bannon, who of course is now leading the, the kind of, uh, outside the administration lobbying for the nationalist kind of idea, um, against the Chinese with the specific and explicit help of Kissinger. Look up Bannon and Kissinger's recent uh, meetings and the fact that they're now coordinating strategies. But Kissinger's the guy who wrote, you know, on China and mm-hmm. is the seen as the Chinese expert and he wants to co- he's always talking about oh we need to cooperate more with China and all of this. So why is he on board with Bannon? What's going on here? Again, there's a much deeper story to this. So I would suggest people take a look at a podcast episode I did called China and the New World Order, talking about who's really pulling the strings here and what the, the, the relationship between China and the U.S. is. And recently I was in Denmark giving a speech at the Open Mind Conference on Echoes of World War One: China, the U.S., and the coming Great War, where I talk about the setup, that is being prepared now for some sort of confrontation between China and the U.S., whether Cold War or Hot War or some other form of war that we can barely even conceptualize, Cyber War or whatever it is, is being set up right now. And I think it's a phony and staged and manipulated conflict, but even those phony and staged manipulated conflict can have some very real-world results. So I think it's important to really be watching this.
3: No, you're absolutely right, and I've read Brzezinski's books where he talks about uh, the rise of China from the 60s and 70s and I've read Kissinger's and some of Rockefeller's books where they have talked about this, uh, before they made it come to fruition and how they were going to move, uh, money and, you know, prop up the, the, um, Chinese currency and, and make tons of money off them, but also make them a world superpower for the shift, uh, um, from America to the Asian Pacific which is what we see today. James, we only got about five minutes left. I want to make sure we we cover this again. You have your documentary from 2015, How Big Oil Conquered the World. You have a new documentary
6: out, Why Big Oil Conquered the World. Where can people find that? They should go to corbettreport.com slash big oil, and there you'll find both of those documentaries. They're available on YouTube and on Bitshoot.com, which is a video sharing platform, people should know about as an alternative to YouTube, because as people might know, YouTube is starting to crack down on anything that sniffs of alternative media. Um, I've also got my own versions of the MP4 video file and the MP3 audio file of those documentaries that you can download, and a complete hyperlinked transcript of both documentaries. So all three hours. If there's anything you hear that's interesting in that documentary, you can go search the transcript, look up who's saying that, and where did it come from, and go follow the hyperlinks and start doing that kind of research. Because, as I say, this is a condensation of 10 years of research down into these three hours. So there's a ton of information, and I wouldn't expect people would get every everything that's being said or talked about in the first go-around. It's the kind of thing that I think you, you have to study and get, really get at. So the, I've made it as easy and simple as possible, and it's all 100% free really available like all my work please do use it as a resource if you like the work you can support it you can also buy physical DVD copies
2: I would urge everyone to support the, uh, the work of James Corbett. I really think th- there's no better investment. The investigative work product, the, what you cover, how you explain things uh certainly much better than I could ever do and, and we collectively, uh, Joe and I, could ever do. And, and the guests that you have, the interviews that, that, that you do, just phenomenal work. So we really appreciate that. So we would urge everyone to support your research. we got to keep you around and keep you viable so you can continue um, providing us the information. In, any closing thoughts in the what in the, we've well, we got about, uh, about two or three minutes left? Any closing thoughts you'd like to leave us with our audience with?
6: Well, I know conversations like this can be quite overwhelming and quite bleak in a lot of ways because there's a lot of very bleak information coming into view. But I always like to stress the things that we can proactively actually do to, if not I don't think even counteract these agendas is quite the right way of saying it, because, again, that's that's an oppositional relationship where you're just reacting to what's being done to you. I think the real point is creating the alternative structures and systems that we can actually create and participate in ourselves that will be the alternatives that people can move to rather than being under these systems of control. And that's the important part to stress. So people who are interested in those types of ideas can always go to corporatereport.com and just type the word solutions into the search bar of corporatereport.com, and you'll find dozens and dozens and dozens of articles and videos and uh, interviews and podcasts that I've done on the concept of solutions, what are things that people can actually do to, to get away from these systems of control that are coming into view, because the same technology that creates this constant global surveillance grid is the technology that could be the decentralization that creates this flowering of humanity. Hey, this conversation we're having right now is enabled because we have this remarkable technology. So we should be looking into this and how we can use it and uh, you know, things that we can do that will ultimately be the things that either we as a human the human species will decide to go on to this this version of the future or that version of the future and I know which way I'm going to steer my ship. Yeah,
2: I I love it. Uh, the, sol- the solutions. And that's what it's about. I, th- I think you've done a just a phenomenal job, as usual. And I thank you, we thank you, for your gracious gift of time. I know you're a very busy man, and uh, the, the projects you, you've done are just uh, tremendous. Uh, I thank you, we thank you for your gift of time. And I'm going to be ordering the book, The Plot to... To kill King, um, uh, on your recommendation, you won't regret it. Okay, um, and, and thanks for uh, thanks for everything that you do, and of course we, we're going to be putting up links to your documentary, two documentaries, and urge people to to really get into that. And what what a great service you've done. So, again, we appreciate it. We hope you will come back. We're at the end of our segment, and uh, we just uh, we, we again our, you've got our admiration and appreciation for everything you've done.
6: Well, thank you for the opportunity.
2: Thank you, sir. Thank All you, James, right. James Corbett, uh, CorbettReport.com. Incredible, isn't it? It was amazing. amazing interview. You know, lots of awesome there, <laughs> there are um, just a few people that I mean, our time is limited. Joe's time and mm-hmm. my time, and and he is one person that you can listen to the audio, the video, and boy, he gets right into it. And the information, the stuff that we learn, is just um, absolutely essential to to what we do. And the the two documentaries that that were the uh why and how big oil conquered the world are, are just phenomenal works. Uh very well done and free. It's amazing. So urge everyone to go there. Joe, you've got something from Green innovative I just before the top of the hour you want to yeah. do this? Because well I, yeah,
3: we'll do this. We'll hit on it now and also on the other side. Um Green innovative has decided to help those um who have been in disaster areas They've sent over 70 GMAG Packages to hurricane devastated areas In Texas, Puerto Rico, Florida And other areas They realize that folks like missionaries are in places like this And are ill-equipped to keep others And themselves through the devastation and despair And they had to do something So they developed this pack, the mission pack So that regular Americans can help With a package to their missionary Who is offering to do the Lord's work They're excited about what it can do and how And how it can help and uh have just put it up on the website. It's at greenovative.com backslash products. In addition to the 15% off all other products in the store by entering code HAGMAN, the mission pack is a standalone item that we believe can have a positive impact on all who receive one. The code to receive 20% off a mission pack is Mission, that's code Mission, and it's 20% off, and when we come back on the other side with Stan I will just give you a quick peek as to what's in here, you got a Bible, some batteries, and some chargers, it's a great, Thank a great you, package, pre-innovative. Yeah. Pre-innovative. we'll be right com. back with Stan after this.
0: Capital appreciation and exceptional income for up to 60 long years would be an absolutely brilliant investment to pass on to future generations. Diversify wisely with direct ownership of fully managed coconuts on prime farmland close to the beautiful Costa Rican border. For more information, qualified accredited investors should go to ProfitsInCoconuts.com. Our phone, 855-888-6288. That's 855-888-6288. This announcement does not constitute an offer to sell securities or a solicitation of an offer to purchase. Offer made by prospectus only. 855-888-6288. Or visit ProfitsInCoconuts.com. ProfitsInCoconuts.com
3: third and final hour on this Tuesday edition of the Hagman Report. We're going to be joined by Stan Deo in just a few moments. The first one I bring you back to the offer by Green Innovative. Uh, in addition to the 15% off for all products in the store, you can use the promo code Hagman to get a special 20% off this pack, the mission pack. The promo code is mission. And in this pack, there is a whole bunch of cool stuff. Um, they've included the Holy bible you got a few flashlights you got um a portable charger you got the G mag power pucks, the batteries, and a battery charger, and instructions and containers to hold all your batteries It's a really a nice pack, and again, the pack is the mission pack and the promo code for twenty percent off is mission. And this is just a, such an awesome thing. We want to thank Alan Riggs at Green Innovative for this wonderful pack. 15% off using promo code Hagman. 20% off this pack, the mission pack, using promo code mission. And go to com for your order and um, you can contact Alan Riggs there. The information is there if you have any further questions. That's greenovative.com. And, and, th- and think of how many people, think of like Coach Dave, for example,
2: mm-hmm. out there who could use that pack. Uh, and, as a matter of fact, my neighbor's pastor is going to be going to Puerto Rico, I guess next week. I'm not sure. But anyway, I told them about this and they were very excited. So it's
3: it's uh, it's a good thing. Absolutely it is. Um we are looking to bring Standeo on in just a moment. Some election results real quick. We have um the Virginia results are in where the Republican has lost and the Democrat Northam uh beat Gillespie, the Republican, but the Gillespie um was so, a, so a Trump. Wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who wouldn't who didn't get Trump's endorsement because he he refused to align himself with Trump and it... It's interesting there wow. because I believe the lieutenant governor, the race was the, the lieutenant governor who did support Trump is is winning, uh, on the Republican side. But either way, you have uh, in New Jersey, the uh, Democrat won, and people. I, I guess I am caught up into this whole thing of looking at the the parties before the names, right? right. Which is so stupid, um, anyway. But uh, the Democrats were able to hold power in Virginia, and I've seen a lot of political pundits. Make the statement that oh, this is a, a a gauge as to what to expect in the twenty eighteen midterm elections. Then I laugh when I hear stuff like that because there's a lot of time between now and then, a whole year actually. So, um, <laughs> not really um, good point. Not really convinced of any kind of uh, you know reunification of the democratic party by this outpouring of support because they they won by a percentage point in a the state they were supposed to win you know that obama and clinton both got double digits in when they ran for president anyway so you got to throw you got to throw all that whatever. out of the window i mean i mean it's it's the states uh, each individual yeah. state this is their races these are who's going to lead their states and um i didn't see a good option in virginia either way and in new york city that's where i want to i think de blasio New York City is what uh, elected <laughs> seriously
2: uh, well you know what um i'm i'm certainly glad because i certainly don't want uh, an epidemic of big gulps overtaking the city of new york that would just be a tragedy now now it's okay for for muslims to you know in in home depot trucks but i uh, got to watch those big gulps and if you didn't get that that was i well if you didn't get that, I, I certainly
3: Yeah, when they, they put the band on <sighs> oh, the uh man. what was it above twenty ounces yeah. of pop? Yeah. Something like that. Uh but yeah, it's crazy. I mean, the the whole system of, of um politics in this country is just Well we're in a perpetual corruption. Just just, per-
2: just just a perpetual uh um campaign. I I uh, how else can you describe it? It's it's all politics all of the time. Mm. And um, hey, Hillary's going to be running in twenty twenty. What do you think? I think great. Get her on the ballot right now. <laughs> yeah, Give her the nomination, there you go. and that ensures <laughs> we can only hope, right? Whoever runs against her, uh, a victory. So yeah, you know, everyone's saying, "Well, she's going to be indicted." Yeah, okay, she's
3: going to, yeah, right, yeah. All right, whatever. All right, wow. We have Standale from Standale dot com with us. He joins us each and every Tuesday night in hour number three. Go to Standale there you can find the show images page that he puts together each and every week. I thought and, of him today, Joe. I, I I interrupted you, and I apologize.
2: But I thought of you, I thought of Stan today when we're looking at what's going on in Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. and who do you think of? But Stan Dale and mm-hmm. what he said on our show. I, I'm telling you, Stan's on to something here, w- with respect to his. I don't know. Vi- I don't want to say vision, but but his analysis of uh so, you know the saudi where saudi arabia fits into everything and i think he's he's right on the money with this stuff this bought by two cents which by the way if you think about it then then you should be buying dare to prepare which is holidayos Magnum Opus, the book about preparation, is the best book out there about preparation. And while you are at it, get uh, Cosmic Conspiracy by Stan Dale as well. Uh, and of course, everything else that, that uh, they've got to offer is it's just incredible. Stan Dale, welcome to welcome to the show, my friend.
7: Can you hear me now?
2: Now we can. There we go. There, yeah. there was a, a little, little delay, delay there.
7: Yeah, sorry. No okay, worries. yes. Yeah, uh, I'll tell you what, the, the developments in Saudi Arabia are really underscoring what I've been suspecting for a couple of years now. Um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion in the Watchman, if you wish, about the nationality or location of the coming Antichrist, the first beast, and I... Um, you know, I, I went out on a limb only because um, I read in Revelation 13 about a, a clue as to the name of the Antichrist of this age. And, you know, where they had the 666 was this number and, and all that kind of stuff. And uh, for years, people have been looking at anything 666 and trying to use comatria to prove it was this leader or that leader. And I I decided to take a different tack and say, well, maybe the answer to this riddle, in Revelation thirteen is in the Bible, and it's pointing us to you know the the scripture uh, that would or scripture that would help us to identify the man of sin when he comes in, and um, it led me to look for a, a prominent figure with power, particularly a prince to who will sign the covenant uh, between Israel and many nations, a prince whose name would be a, a derivative of Solomon from King Solomon. And um, at the time I started looking at this, I think it was two thousand and sixteen, um, in in the middle of the summer. There, I found some terrorists and stuff uh, that uh, had Soleimani names, and then I found the head of the Kuds force in Iran, uh, you know, General Soleimani, uh, Qasem Soleimani. These were derivatives of the name Solomon, but at this point, you know, and back in two thousand sixteen, I couldn't see that he had enough power to be the the rising antichrist he had to have a lot more money and power than he did at that time and he does now so as things progressed we saw that the kingship of Saudi Arabia changed Uh, earlier this year the old king died and uh, the next in line was King Solomon um, and that's the Arabian way to say of course Solomon and uh, he had a son uh, Prince Solomon who was high up in the ranks in the court, but he wasn't the uh, the prince in line or the crown prince to take over when he's dead. King Solomon dies, so um, I thought, well, he you'll he, probably be a prince for a long time, but he's certainly not going to be in charge of Saudi Arabia at this rate. So I thought, well, maybe I'll go look at other candidates for Antichrist at this rate. And then all of a sudden, here, just in the last few months, the last few weeks, in fact, um, King Solomon said, "Look, I'm not going to." let Mohammed bin Nayef uh, be the the crown prince. Uh, He is not my son, and I disagree with the committee that said he should be the next in line when I die. I I want my son to be. And his son was the one I've been watching, Mohammed bin Salman. Um, And as as things progressed, young uh, Mohammed bin Salman, let's call him MBS, as everybody else does in the court over there, he gained more and more power over the military and over domestic uh, portfolios and financial things. And then, as you know, in the last week, he started rounding up, arresting um, anybody in opposition to him in the other parts of the Saudi royal family that supported Mohammed bin Nayef, who had been taken out of the... Uh, the uh, the lineup to be the the new king when king Solomon dies and they've been arrested they've been put in nice accommodations as far as we know but um under this kind of law that MBS is using it's the the wahhabi law which is a uh, one of the three forms of islam it's a very strict and old form which doesn't allow statue worship or hero worship or going to the shrines like you know uh, over in mecca and stuff like that it's a very kind of fundamental type of Islam. And one of the things that that fundamental type of Islam says is that when you find, you know, a person who's betraying the faith, uh, you know, you can kill him, you can take his property. And I wondered, as soon as I heard that one of the richest men in the world, which was one of the people that young MBS just arrested, you know, was arrested, and he's like, you know, 50 times over a billionaire that means that young mohammed bin salman can under that wahhabi law just take his property his wife his family kill him whatever he wants to because he is in opposition to the law of the wahhabi form of islam um, we know that that young prince salman is um he's he's taking the economy of saudi arabia in a different direction instead of total oil dependence he's setting up this 500 a billion dollar city that's more like a new nation almost in the southwest corner of Saudi Arabia and I do have a picture of that up here on the show images page today uh, starting with slide 40 and going up to 45 these are all slides dealing with this new city that this Prince Solomon is uh, going to build it's like a new Babylon um, it will be a multicultural city it will probably have sm- it'll be a smart city as I've read so far um and it will encompass if you look at slides 41 and 42 on my show images page this will encompass the area that used to be part of uh, the, the Exodus story, it was where Moses, you know uh, talked to God on Mount Sinai, which is really next to Jabal el Um and all that's going to be incorporated in this new super city called Neom N-E-O-M Neom, and I thought what an odd name so did everybody else, and one of the journalists asked the prince, um, why are you calling it Neo? And he says, well, Neo for new, and M is the first letter in Arabic of the, the of the word that represents future. So the city is a new future. It's going to change a lot of things. And he's making it so that it's not such a strict Wahhabi uh, rule there. Uh, he's going to be inviting people from other religions to come in there and be you know, very open culturally, at least at the moment. So what I what I see there is this young prince Mohammed bin Salman is going against the god of his fathers. He's breaking free of that and going toward a more, um, you know, worldly type city and uh, and law there in Neo. Um, so we've got a new Babylon being built. We've got uh, a departure from his uh, father's you know religion, and he is a prince. And certainly, if a peace treaty is made here shortly between Israel and the Arab nations, Israel and um, the Palestinians as well, if that peace treaty is ratified by the prince, because he's still not a king yet, then he could rat—he could be the prince who ratifies the covenant. Um, so there are just a lot of things adding up that uh, underline that this young fellow is probably going to be the beast, the antichrist of the uh, Revelation thirteen account. Um, I don't see that any European leader that is on the the uh, the world at the moment um, would qualify to have the knowledge and connections with the Middle East like uh, someone from the Middle East would. I mean, you know European culture and concepts and religions and history are so different to that in the Middle East that with the Antichrist who is going to really go after Israel and uh, the Christians and uh, try to you know overthrow them eventually. He's got to have an intimate knowledge of the Middle East. He's got to be brought up in it. And that's why young Prince Salman I think, is really at the forefront uh, of my picks at the moment for Antichrist. Um, you, you know, we just got to keep watching. Him be Oh, and not only that, um, I told Holly over the weekend when when he started arresting all these people in his country that, uh, you know, he's going to irritate the heck out of the ben supporters and they're going to come after him. And sure enough, this weekend, his right-hand man, um, Mansour bin Mukran, uh, a prince in his uh, court there at Riyadh, he is his deputy or number two in this whole new organization that King Salman formed to get rid of all of the corruption in the country. And that prince was killed, with, along with several other ministers and stuff, in a helicopter accident, you know, in quotes, uh, down near Yemen so stand. Uh, over the weekend.
3: You said that the prince that was killed in the helicopter crash was a a friend, not somebody who was wanted in the corruption sweep. But it was that's a, true. He was a friend of uh MBS.
7: Yes, absolutely, very close friend. Okay. In fact, in fact, that uh, young prince that died in the, in the plane crash or the helicopter crash, his father was the former director general of the Arabian Intelligence Agency. So. And they were all friends with King Solomon and, well, now King Solomon and young Prince Ben Solomon. So somebody struck back at him. And you can expect after this, there's going to be a lot more heads rolling. I mean, literally rolling, uh, because he's killed, someone has killed a friend of the, the prince.
3: Okay. Very interesting. Yeah, and anyway. eight, eight people died in that. Yeah. Yeah. So where do we go? Where does Saudi Arabia go from here? Um, we just get this consolidation of power. And the 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 rule under MBS, and it just continues to go from there.
7: Yeah, he's he's kind of the the power behind the throne. His dad is very old, you know, King Salman, and he uh, the the king is uh, kind of borderlining on um, Alzheimer's, and uh, as a result, a lot of his power has been turned over to his son because he realizes he's failing. And he wants his son to have the power even before, uh, you know, he steps down from the throne, if he does, before all this hits the fan. So watch for a young MBS to stay a prince, you know, as long as his dad's alive, but to have huge amounts of power, virtually being king without being king. And you'll note that when uh, President Trump was invited over to Saudi Arabia, he was treated very nicely, uh, royally, so to speak. And that since then uh, Jared Kushner and other members of the Trump administration over in the Middle East have been pushing very hard to form a uh, a solution for peace in Jerusalem in Israel between the Palestinians and the Israelis now um, coupled with that uh, President Trump has been very close with young m b s negotiating over what they're going to do about Iran and this kind of lays the groundwork for um Saudi Arabia to gain access to the nuclear weapons it needs uh, and other types of weapons to defeat Iran and uh, you know uh, uh, Qasim Soleimani the general over there. If that happens, it means that MBS and with the help of the United States and and our uh, arms grants to them will have gone into the Syria area into Iran and destroyed Iran. But that will mean that these huge forces, number of forces you know, hundreds of thousands of, and troops and men under the control of Saudi Arabia in the region, uh will be parked uh, within just a few miles, I mean you know, less than thirty miles from the northern part of Israel. Um, I suspect if we watch very closely what's going to happen is this young prince, having made all these peace overtures to Israel, which overthrows thousands of years of hatred between them, he is temporarily fooling or trying to fool the Israelis into thinking, oh, we're all lovey-dovey now because we have a common enemy in Iran. But I think this young prince is going to try at that point when he's got his troops there uh, allegedly doing something else, we'll turn them and go turn on Israel, which would be a big mistake. And I think that may be his undoing. But there's so many other things happening in prophecy right now in Israel that tell us that we're very close to the beginning of the tribulation, that uh you have to know that somebody is being preparing themselves for attacking israel um just watching H- how close
2: make- and i know that i don't. i, I know you know you don't have a crystal ball but uh-huh. you know damn close i guess is the answer right I, weeks months who knows but very close
7: well, in slide 47 here, I, I link to a video that was uh, sent to me from some guys on YouTube. And it was an interview with several people that I know about and have read their work before who have been trying to find the original site of Solomon's Temple. And when you take scripture word for word and don't deviate, you'll see that the Temple Mount, where that big flat area is where the Dome of the Rock is in Al aqsa Mosque, that could not be the site of the Temple of Solomon. There are just so many things wrong with that. There wasn't a water supply. There's only one river that they used uh, you know, for the uh, ritual bathing for the mikvah uh, in the original Solomon's Temple. And that is not up on the, the Temple Mount. It's down southwest of that. Or, see if you're looking north, it'd be southeast of that in a place called Ophel. Uh, O-P-H-E-L. And if you look at the slides 46 and 48, I have pictures there. That you can enlarge and see what I've pointed to. The real Solomon's temple was destroyed, just as Jesus said. No stone would be left on another. It would be flattened. All the stones just crumbled and flattened. Okay, that's not the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount is still a huge foundation, and it is the Temple Mount. If you look at the footprint of it, exactly like what the ones that the Romans built all through Europe when they housed their legions. And we did have one legionary garrisoned at Jerusalem, uh, you know, which came in and burnt the city and, and uh, knocked buildings down, particularly the temple. So they didn't knock down where they were staying. That was a footprint of where they had the Roman legion stationed over the, t- the highest part in the city. And the Dome of the Rock sits over uh, a, a very rocky, you know, uh, not flat type rock. And you wouldn't put the Temple of Solomon on a, a precarious point like that, and make that that rock point part of the flat temple floor. It had to be on a flatter ground, which you will see in slide forty-six and forty-eight uh, in the circled area. Now there there are archaeologists over there now excavating that area and finding uh, like um, artifacts and walls and and uh, tower uh, a tower. Which tell you that that was the temple site, and as they dig further, I'm sure there'll be more of it revealed here in the next few weeks to a month or so. Um, that means that means that you can rebuild the temple of Solomon, which is a small temple. You can rebuild it on that site because it's outside the temple uh, mount. It's in a junkyard, in essence. You could rebuild that and not get the ire of the. Uh, Muslims who claim that, you know, the Dome of the Rock is, is theirs and you don't have to get up onto it then to uh, to build the temple and have temple worship. Even um, oh, uh, Erdogan over in uh, President Erdogan over in Turkey uh, is starting to uh, lean toward, let the Jews have their worship site to let them build Solomon's temple and I was thinking, well I guess it had to be on the Temple Mount, there's areas to do it but it wouldn't have to be Everyone could be pleased, you know, the Jews, the Christians, the Arabs, uh, you know, uh, and the Muslims. They would be pleased if this site at Olvel was used to rebuild the temple because it wouldn't encroach on the Temple Mount. Um, and so that means we are very close to rebuilding the temple, very close.
2: Uh, I'm surprised at the. Uh, I'm looking at image 48 in the encircled area. I'm just surprised at the at the small area that that represents relative to to the rest of the
7: uh, yeah yeah I forget how many acres you know uh, the uh, temple mount is but it's huge and I've done the, the analysis years ago and put it on to the show image page when we did one of our programs with you showing how small the footprint of Solomon's temple was compared to the temple mount I mean it might be in footprint area maybe as big as the outer gray rim under the, the dome of the rock, you know, that, uh, the building part of it around it. Um, yeah. but it, it's not a big place. Uh, the temple of Herod, uh, in contrast was much bigger. Uh, and that was, that was, uh, a different location. But anyway, that wow. we're, we're, there are just so many things. If you watch that video that I linked to there in image 47 and see Bob Cornecke's, uh discussions and various other uh, Bible scholars discussions on this. You will come back from that and say, they're right. They're right. It it fits scripture. Absolutely. It's the same way I found the Garden of Eden and where, uh, you know, Atlantis was as part of the flood thing and where Noah lived. All following scripture uh, exactly. Don't deviate from it. And uh, sizes, locations, rivers, all that, you put that into the mix, and you'll see that's where the Temple of Solomon uh, was built.
3: Simple enough. It's very interesting, Stan. And um, you know, people have been talking about this obviously for for a long time. And we know that there is a huge amount of preparations that have taken place in order to secure many of the th- of the things that are needed to rebuild the temple, uh, from you know the gold furnishings to different supplies. So, what would they need? They would just need a a given permission to build and and. And what would it take for the actual building to start?
7: I don't know about all the paperwork, uh, you know, but, um, because uh, a number of rabbis are, are studying the same uh, information that's in that uh, video and coming up and saying, yes, that's it. Because they are doing that, uh, there's going to be mounting religious pressure on the government to let the temple be built there and to avoid conflict with uh, the Muslims up on the temple mount. So. Um, it may take, you know, the Knesset to approve it. I'm sure they'll have to give some kind of tacit approval. Um, and then, uh, you know, make the contracts for people to go in there and uh, rebuild the temple in a manner that the original was, was built with. Um, the original stones were not cut out with metal instruments. Uh, I don't know exactly how long it would take to do now, but... Uh, they have to be ritually cut and placed, and uh, all the, the, the interior artifacts of the temple um, have been rebuilt now, as far as I know, in a proper manner. And the Jerusalem Temple Foundation, of course, if you go to their website, has pictures of what they've done, the, the great menorah. They they have the sacrificial uh, uh, showbread holders. They, they have all kinds of things built exactly as described uh, in the Torah. So those kind of things that would take a long time to do ritually, uh, in a ritualistic manner, it's pure have been done. So it's the building, uh, that needs to be done next. And that might take, because of the way it has to be built to be ritually pure, that might take, what, three and a half years?
0: <laughs> mm. Be in the middle of the thing.
7: <laughs> <laughs> I see yeah. what you did there. Yeah. 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 Very and, interesting. Uh, what comes after, uh, young Ben Salman when he's taken out of power as the first Antichrist if he is the second beast is going to do a lot more damage on a global basis than the Antichrist did in the Middle East and now who that will be you know I guess we have to wait and see if we're here uh, to see the, the development of world leaders at that point in time but whoever it is I'm sure, will have the support of Satan and the technology of the uh, alleged alien visitors. Um, it might be Erdogan of Turkey. I mean, he certainly thinks of himself very highly. And by allying himself with uh, with Israel to a degree, with the temple and with uh, Mohammed bin Salman, if Mohammed bin Salman does all the great things he's talking about, and then dies or is wounded or whatever, taken out of the game. I could see where Erdogan would pick up the ball and run with it and say, here's what MBS started. Um, you know, he was a great, great guy. He, he started the whole Reformation of the Planet to Islam. And you could see how he would um, make images of him, you know, TV images or, you know, 3D holographic images, whatever, and say, this is a great man. Let's not forget what he's done and, and build on it. And, you know, the world money money system, stuff like that. Even MBS uh, in in finance is is looking at um, tying the Arabian banks to this new uh, blockchain transfer of assets and money on a global basis. So he's laying the groundwork there. Israel, believe it or not, in their smart city, is playing along into that uh, blockchain type of mentality with uh, two or three smart cities that run on, you know, everything under control of the computers. Um, it's it just I I marvel watching all these things happen right before our eyes
3: yeah um, <laughs> it's definitely a, a very interesting time we live in Stan where do you want to go next I see you have a, a piece up here uh, German army prepares for breakup of European Union or worse and this is from an article from Zero Hedge we've seen the, the populist uh, movement that led to a declaration of independence in Catalonia, even though the government's really clamped down uh, on that independence referendum, and the leader of that party is now in exile. But they, they, the political commentators, both nationally and uh, internationally, were saying how this is a very strong indicator of the national sentiments that many people inside the European Union share and that many of the countries want to actually break away from the European Union. Is this what this article is referring to, why they are preparing like this? Uh,
7: yes, they're also pre- preparing for uh, other things as far as um, uh, civil breakups, in, um, like for an ISIS-type or terrorist-type scenario. But uh, they're looking between now and the year 2040 um, at various scenarios. Uh, to quote the article here, uh, they're also looking at the increasingly disorderly, sometimes chaotic, and conflict-prone world, and it's dramatically changed the security environment of uh, Germany and all of Europe. So you know, it's instabilities in the, the government structures all through Europe, uh, and even into the uh, kind of northern part of the Middle East. Now, if we're going to see a revived Roman Empire, the revived Roman Empire had two legs in in the in, uh, the Dream of, of Nebuchadnezzar to Daniel. Uh, legs of iron and uh, uh, and clay mixed in the feet of the court. We have the old east and west legs of the Roman Empire. So the eastern side would be like the Ottomans, you know, Erdogan, Turkey, and, and all into the Middle East. The west would have to be under somebody uh, who would be allied to Turkey. So we have to look, is is uh, Germany going to be this major thrust that's going to join with Erdogan, uh, Erdogan uh, ruling the Eastern Roman Empire, revived, and Germany uh, ruling the Western one? Um, I don't know that uh, any of the other nations in the European alliance would be as strong as, as Germany, do you?
3: No, no.
7: So, um... That's a good just, analysis, by the way. I... I yeah. And then, and then you see, you have the, the club of Rome model that, that, um, was put out in 1978. Uh, I have it on page uh, 200, the map of the earth that they put out for the new structure of planet earth under this global model. And that had or has 10 regions, 10 new super nations. Uh, consuming all the nations of the world into one of these, uh, each of these uh, ten nations, uh, new nations so it might be that the revived Roman Empire has, you know, five regions of the model to Germany and five to Erdogan and his people, because Erdogan you know, he's really inherited the Ottoman Empire mentality and history, and the Ottoman Empire was not small so between these two, Germany and Turkey, we might see all these things form that global construct of ten super nation states. Um, You know, a lot of these things we'll have to just see as we get to that point if we're still here. And those that are still here will, I'm sure, be able to determine how it fits into prophecy.
2: I find it very interesting how the demographics have changed over the last decade alone. In Europe to allow what we exactly what you're talking about I mean when you think of the um, the alien or the I, I don't want to say immigration or refugee but but that that uh, just the movement of the demographics to, to kind of fit with biblical prophecy it's it's rather astounding
7: well we're seeing the push not only through Europe but through the north and south America as well of the Islamic uh, Quote unquote refugees. And we know that it has been a long-term plan of, of the uh, Muslim nations, uh, particularly in the Middle East, the Arab nations, to go into the infidels' countries, that, you know, and into the people of the book, to Israel and America and Europe, of course, and breed, make children, lots of children, and bring them up in Islam and not let them fully integrate into the local communities. This is a slow invasion of the world, and it's now coming to a head, and it, it fits perfectly with the description of the times of the Antichrist, where he will behead, and this just follows what they do in the Arab nations now, when you know they follow the law, they cut people's head off with a sword, they behead them, and we see that mentality, that law, you know, Sharia law, being pushed out through the world at the moment. So, you can be sure that whatever the new world order is, it will be using something similar to Sharia law to run the place and get everybody to take the mark of the new leader.
3: Fascinating, Stan. I mean, it's, uh, we were just talking with James, uh, Corbett right before you came on, and he was talking about the, uh, the rise and consolidation of the oil cartel, the takeover of, of a number of industries, all leading to the rise of technocracy and how we live in a time that all these things are, are capable. We we have the technological capabilities to implement those systems and the, the uh, beast system that the Book of Revelation talks about, which would uh, set everybody up for that mark of the beast type system and never before have all the things... Uh, been in place for that to be able to happen. One, Israel's a nation again. Two, we have the computerization of everything to the point where, if they really wanted to, they could start implementing chips for everybody tomorrow. All we are, yeah. you know, one, we're one disaster, uh, worldwide disaster away from you know a, a complete takeover of humanity if they really wanted to do it that way. And never before in history have all these things been uh, coming together at the same time.
7: I know. I know. And it's going to be really uh, a lot like when the people of Germany, uh, kind of pushed Hitler to the top and let him run things. They didn't, um, they weren't forced to be parts of the Nazi, uh, uh, world, you know, the National Socialists. They, they accepted it because it was something they needed. Um, we're, the, the people of Earth are going to see the same situation where there will be an economic collapse across the world at some point. A panic will ensue. There there already is talk of a, a new pandemic coming out of Africa and various other places. Watch, you know, for this Ebola type thing. Um, food shortages because the weather and the hurricanes and crop damage. Um, nuclear war. <laughs> Boy, that's in the news every second. And even the sun is misbehaving right now, terribly so, in what should be a quiet time for it. So these things tell us that, you know, as people of the Earth, that we're in trouble, and even threat of asteroid impact, you know. Um, so people are looking for solutions, and they're going to look a lot harder as soon as it hits their pocketbook. You don't have money, you don't have a job, okay, you get desperate. So you look for someone to give you the answer. You're not being forced, as far as you, really, you think yourself, into accepting this new world order. And so people will rush To anyone who can give them peace and security, you know, security being income and assets and protection. Um, and and we're, we're so rapidly approaching the the conversions of all these crisis curves that, you know, any tick of the clock, you're going to pick up the newspaper and see that this new world order is forming to help us.
3: Yeah. You're absolutely Uh right, Stan. Um, just want to get your, your take on what happened in Texas on Sunday with the the church shooting and we see the same mo of the the media calling for gun control and um you know being very rabid about that and we see that this shooter was an atheist he was very anti-christian on social media to the point where people would ignore him unfriend him because of his rabid beliefs and hatred does this um we, we, we opened the month of October with the Las Vegas shooting. And then we have the month of November opening up and we have this <clears throat> Texas church shooting. there are obviously two completely separate types of incidents as, and we can go through that if you want, but the church shooting, um, hit, hit close to home as far as, you know, happening in a church, the worst ever shooting in a place of worship in American history. And it is, um, just terrible. Stan, what do you think about
7: this? Well, I agree. It's absolutely terrible. Um the the targets, you know, uh, whether they be Christian uh, churches or uh Jewish synagogues or uh, Muslim, you know, mosques. When you go into those, as a general rule, you don't be you're not carrying weapons, okay? Because you're going into a holy place. So it makes you an unarmed uh crowded group of people in a you know, like a, a kill zone with very little exits, you know, and very little protection inside of it. So it is a terrible concept, but that's, that's what terrorism in any form uses to find targets uh, in a shopping mall or in some place where they can control the crowd and not let them get to cover or safety. Um, I don't know how this shooter in Texas, whether he planned it that way, uh, or, you know, was just lucky, but uh to have its targets all you know, concentrated in that one spot. There was a church uh, shooting here a few years back in Colorado Springs, too, and that particular church. Now, uh, I think they still do it now. They have armed guards at the front of the church there to, to be sure no one rushes in and kills them again. Uh, and that's a sad state of affairs when you think about it. Do,
2: do, you, do, you, do you think that uh, Christian churches today are more of a target? Uh, and I... Uh... Forgive the academic sound of that question, but I I, um, I, I guess really that is the entire question. Are, are Christian churches today more of a target than they ever were for, for cause?
7: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's coming home to America, and so people are paying attention to it now, but this kind of stuff has been happening in the Middle East for you know, a couple of decades. Uh, Christians being run out of town, being killed, uh, the, their possessions being, you know, confiscated by the, the local um, uh, Muslim, uh, you know, community. So, yeah, the Jews and the Christians are both under increasingly severe persecution, even in the United States. Um, you know, uh, the, I don't know whether this is somehow you know, this guy that uh, massacred people there in Texas, whether he was controlled. Or whether you know uh, the devil just triggered his button or something, but um, whatever it is, it is driving us toward that point where there's going to be a hue and cry for confiscation of weapons, like it yep. did in Australia, and it does not work. Not in this, not in this kind of a world. Uh, when the Messiah uh, is here, yeah, but not now.
2: You, you know, there are more more weapons than people in the United States. Uh, I can't. I, I just. In my mind, I, I cannot see how a weapons confiscation would work. I, no, I, I just, wouldn't.
3: I, I can't wrap my brain around that. It might work in some very individual, um, highly populated city type areas. Yeah, maybe like, but Chicago. not in ninety uh, percent right. of the country. I can't see it, right. It would, not unless right. they deployed actual military to
7: fight and kill everybody. Which, yeah, yeah, and that that would just make civil war. I mean, there's no way that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, in an ideal uh, civilization, in a community that's ideal, and um, where people are good, and where their thoughts are, are, you know, their evil thoughts don't occur, like in the when the Messiah comes, it would be nice to just not have to worry about um, your, your neighbor stealing things or coming to kill you, and uh, that's going to be good. But we're not there, and the bridge between where we are today and there, is a very precipitous and dangerous bridge. A lot of people are going to get hurt as we cross that to the other side of the great tribulation. You, you know, um, I, I think where
2: we are today is a consequence of obviously taking God out of our schools and uh, or the, the lack of morality, the lack of spirituality this this uh, confluence of uh well i th- i th- i think j- just a sum total of of the erosion of our values our principles and our sp- our, our our spirituality in in total um you,
7: yeah you, uh, going along that line um there was an article in newsweek this week about uh cern um CERN having a, a concern, as it were, over the discoveries they've made that show that there must be a God because the symmetry of the universe uh, says that it couldn't have just happened spontaneously. And so it's really tying them in a knot over there that all the research they've done at CERN now shows that it had to be created by some intelligent thought or being. They're, they're actually having to accept God whether they want to or not. <laughs> whoops or or (laughs) (laughs) the
2: the law of unintended consequences in a good way uh, I suppose but uh, wow okay
7: yeah I still have my doubts about what the real purpose uh, is in um, making such a device and spending so much money on it To to, it's got to be some kind of an experiment looking at parallel universe to do like Nimrod was trying to do to ascend into the upper regions where God and Jesus where they live in a parallel universe of higher energy density than our own and that's the only thing I can think of they're, they're really playing with making a, a gateway between the worlds
2: yeah uh, I'll sign on to that not that I know um, but but it's, it sounds as good as any um uh, yeah, I'd go along with
7: that have you, uh, sorry, go on
3: no, go ahead Sam
7: well, uh, I was just saying you've uh, been watching the the news programs on uh, Puerto Rico down there and how long, how many years it's going to be before some parts of the island get power again Yeah, Uh, they are so damaged down there, I cannot believe it it's just, uh, we watched a documentary Holly and I the other day about this uh, I think 60 Minutes and uh, I was astounded. I mean, I'd heard the reports, you know, that didn't have power and that kind of stuff. But when you see how bad the situation is, and talk to the uh, the army general, you know, our guys that are down there with the FEMA, and see how long it's going to take to fly stuff in and to boat stuff in to rebuild the distribution network for the high voltage and uh, you know turn the the power on, so that you can start building the country up again, it it, it really takes on a a kind of a real personal feel to it uh, you know much more so than just read the newsprint um, it's going to be the video of the day tomorrow Holly said she's okay. going to put it up
2: Hey, yeah. good okay heads up everyone video of the day thanks for, thanks for that um, be sure to check sandeo.com video of the day uh, yeah that's uh, and, and that's America that's part of America
7: uh, it is, and uh, we we tend to forget that you'll see that in the documentary where they talk about that very thing that people don't realize that those you know it's a a territory that we own, and so they're American citizens, yeah
2: yeah exactly. Uh, yeah it's it's something well you, we, we've got the you know we've got the weather we've got the wildfires um we we've got all of these events taking place as Judd mentioned the shootings uh and, and then on a, on a larger scale you've got the um, uh, the geopolitical things taking place. I, I yep. guess I guess we're 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 front and center in the uh, orchestra section here, watching things play <laughs> out.
7: Yeah, and and the sad thing I see here is that there are so many people that are caught up in their their own dramas, you know, life, um, work, holidays, family, yep. that don't don't follow uh, Christian prophecy at all. Uh, they They haven't had a reason to uh I think they will shortly when things start to get really tough, but I don't think that the majority of them will you know accept Jesus and prepare for what is coming sadly but um well are the, there the
2: other uh, the uh, the recent research poll I think it was Pew maybe uh less than half of um the young people today believe in, in God, or have any real meaningful belief system at all, a belief in God or belief in spirituality, heaven, hell. And it was, it was a pretty, from what I saw, a kind of a comprehensive survey, but I was just amazed and astounded at the figures, um uh, about half of, of the population, uh, of the younger population, just have no, no, Belief system, and, and then tie that in with what what Joe was talking about and about the shooter in Color or in uh, Texas. Yeah. Um. The atheistic, uh, the 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 hatred actually that you would have to have for Christians, and how this is playing out. So it's it's amazing.
7: Yes, it plays right into the hands of the uh, Islamic terrorists. It really yes. does.
2: No, that's true yeah and, and, uh, and i think we're seeing an uptick too i was looking at some fbi statistics and but they're dated um you you had mentioned about the about the uh, uh, attacks on churches uh and, and synagogues the, the and, and again these are dated 2016 i believe was the latest or maybe 2015 the um uh, Contrary to what we're being led to believe, there are more tax, attacks against Christian churches and synagogues in America than, of course, uh, mosques. No surprise there, but the numbers are indeed rising um, against Christian churches and, and synagogues. So, you know, yeah, um, yeah. So it's something uh, to watch.
7: I, I can't, uh, you know, I can't really understand how we allowed America to uh, you know let Islam into the country when it's not really a religion, it's more or less a political structure, uh because it is its basic tenets are to kill anyone, to behead anyone who does not follow their corporate structure or corporate plan. Um they say that they believe in God, but their their God is um you know not ours for sure. True. Right. And giving freedom of religion and letting them come in was a mistake. It's going to be hard to undo that. And I don't mean to sound callous, but that is just a fact.
2: Was it a mistake or was it a tactic? Because I, the way I see it is uh, the, the best way to destroy the, uh, the United States, obviously, is to uh, bring people in that don't assimilate and to balkanize our country to... to um, it 's civilization jihad in, in in a large extent um so I, I think it's i think it's more of a purposeful event than a mistake perhaps
7: in modern times yes but when when you look at the founders of our country and the constitution they drew up they were they were wanting to practice freedom of religion because they didn't have freedom of religion in england, and i don 't think they really considered the impact of a rising um, Islamic force in the Middle East, which is rebuilding, you know, reviving the crusades. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the crusades never really stopped. They just slowed down until they could regroup over in the uh, Arabic nations. Uh, and this is really still a continuance of the, the, the battles that were taking place between the Christians and the Muslims in the Middle East and the, in the crusades. There's no question about it. Mm.
3: Yeah, you're right. Stan, we got a few minutes left in the hour before we let you go, and I want you have the whole first row on the show images page dedicated to the EMP shield and the right. EMP shield website. Why don't you tell our right. listeners about this?
7: Uh, well, can do. The um, the EMP shield uh, is a device that uh, my partner uh, Tim uh, Cardy, we're partners in research uh, into free energy. Um, he developed uh, that for for us for the antenna system I'm building to convert atmospheric electricity generated by the sun into electricity at a level we can use in our homes. And we were aware of solar EMPs and uh, then the North Korea situation made the nuclear EMP situation a lot more um, threatening, a lot closer than perhaps a solar EMP would be because a nuclear EMP... It can actually fry stuff, you know, your electronics in your homes, whereas the solar EMP will fry the grid maybe, but not so much your homes. It's, there's a whole paper that we we'll link linked to to discuss that for you. But um, anyway, uh, Tim started uh, messing around with some circuits and designs and checked with ham radios and a bunch of other people, and from his own experience, you know, as a ham operator and, and a member of the Mars program, he said, look, I have, you know, the solution and he showed me the circuit and I said, well, okay, that sounds good to me. And then he compared the, the, the parameters yes. of the circuit to, uh, what the, um, what the, uh, military specs were. And, uh, he had to figure out a way to make the device that we're making even better, many times better than the military specs, which he did to do. And, um, I remember when he solved it, the, the light came on his eyes and he said, ah, here's the solution. Look at this. And so anyway, that was only about six weeks ago. And since six weeks ago, we've started, uh, a, a company, a manufacturing complex over in Kansas, uh, started hiring people to make a bunch of these because so many people that listen to this show and go to our website and stuff have already started wanting to order them, you know, get on the pre-order list. Because these the thing, they're only about that big, and and they fit either inside your um, circuit breaker box or inside with a little uh, set of LEDs that come out under under the edge of your uh, circuit breaker lid, and it's just with a flat ribbon cable, and that thing there protects your house and houses with say up to about ten thousand square feet area. The links of wire in the internal wiring and stuff will all be protected by hooking one of these things up to the, the, the circuit breaker box. So, um, since we started announcing this and put up a website in a, in a, in a shopping cart with the basic unit, people started writing in or phoning in and emailing and say, look, um, can you do this? Will it do that? Uh, will it take care of my aircraft parked in the hangar? You know, what about our, our boats? You know, uh, what about our solar panel array and stuff? Do we need one or two? Where do we put them? And we've been bombarded with very intelligent questions, but it slowed us down a bit because we had to, to look, address each of these problems and figure out how to make easy adjustments to the circuit in this to deliver to people. So around, uh, what is this, the 7th, and about the 13th of this month, uh, if things go as planned now, we will start delivering the first of these units to customers who've ordered them already. Um we're going to have to call everybody that's ordered one of these and uh, talk to them very quickly and say, look, do you want, you know, this kind of fits inside the, the circuit breaker box or do you want the ones that uh, the mount outside? Uh, it's basically a, a different kind of wire, and if, if they want one that's on a solar panel thing, we need to know, if, you know whether it's 24 volts or 48 volts. So it's going to be a little bit of discussion with uh, our customers in the beginning to see which one they really want, because they've ordered one at a price, a general one, but we have to be specific. So starting the 13th of this month, we're going to start calling uh, and finding out exactly what kind would best work for the people and start sending it out. And then hopefully in uh, December, we'll be able to manufacture uh, in the thousands per week, but that takes time to set up that equipment and assembly line. So um, it's something that's very important. Uh, a lot of people realize that uh, we have... We have organizations with thousands of members that are tapping at the door saying, when can we have them? We understand. I mean, you know, ham operator clubs and things like that, they, they know what we're talking about. So it's a, it, it'll protect, I'd say, 95% of the situations in domestic uh, residences and small businesses. Um, but there are going to be situations where there will be too much antenna wire in a length of wire in somebody's backyard or something that may make theirs fail. So we'll say 95% of the time, yeah, it's better than no protection at all. Um, we've even found out in this study of this in the last six weeks, there's a guy up in Colorado Springs, north of us here, that has gathered information from the government and all kinds of publications. He, he's a serious scientist, well-qualified. And he's told us that, you know, you can even have a car, uh, you know, like 85% of the cars, it doesn't matter what year they were made, will probably survive an EMP attack. And it might stop, but then you just turn the ignition key and start it again. It's all to do with the wiring loom that's inside the thing there. And some of the more modern ones uh, in the last few years may have a type of wiring loom that it may not be as, as uh, conducive to saving the car as not. But um, anyway, we're very encouraged by what we're reading. Yeah. So you can see our resources page on um, uh, myempshield.com and go to the resources page and and start reading the articles on this guy's website. Uh, that we link to it just, you know, it put my mind at ease in a lot of ways. That's in a way. Have you thought that
2: that could be part of your legacy? A big part of your legacy. Uh, I don't know. I'm I'm throwing that out there, but my goodness, um,
7: it'll be nice. It'll be nice. That's a big deal. It really is. It's it's it surprised us. Uh, we didn't do this with intent. It, it happened by. A coincidence, I guess.
2: Wow. Well that's fantastic. Stan, you've done it again. You've taken us to the end of the show. Wanna thank you so much for your gift of time and a lot of great information, a lot of things to to certainly consider, especially with respect to Saudi Arabia and what's I'll going keep on. Keep watching there. the yeah. keep
7: watching the website. Holly will update it.
2: All right. All right. And, and don't forget the video of the day tomorrow. Uh well good just hey, visit com all of the time. Stan, thanks so much. May uh may God bless you and keep you safe and you and Holly and the and the little ones as yeah. well. <laughs>
7: yeah, they're here wanting to go outside right now. <laughs> all, right. <laughs> all right. All
2: right, buddy. See you later. Bye Stan. Bye-bye. Folks, that'll, that'll do it. Uh, that'll do it for us. Please check in with our uh, programs, 9 o'clock, uh, Doug Hagman Radio Show, 2 to 3, uh, John and Joe. Until uh, till tomorrow, good night.